Should we let's do the let's do the intro first, and then we'll do the outro afterwards. Okay. Cool. 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 Okay. They're bad. They're boys, and occasionally they talk about running. Yes, it's the Bad Boy Running Podcast with your hosts Jody Rainsford and David Heller. Admit I was a clone to be messing around, but that doesn't mean that you have to leave town. Bye 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 bye. Hey, how you doing, Jody Rainsford? I'm all right, David Hellard. I haven't, you, I haven't asked you for ages about your injury. I, we kind of gloss over it, or we just go, "Oh, you're not running." How is how is your injury? Because if if you this is for the first time, David is. Um, he's the more capable runner of us two. I think that's I think that's a fair yeah, assessment. Right. Um, but um, at the moment, I am because I'm the I'm a, I'm able to actually run, and uh, you're not. How, how is your injury? Is it is it clearing up? Is it is well, it doing anything different? Injuries, injuries. So um, basically, I it's it's very hard to be critical of the NHS without. <laughs> Oh, we're gonna go. We're gonna go anti NHS literally within the first like ninety <laughs> seconds. Go on. Well, it's. Did you not? Did you not stand on the doorstep and clap because of because uh, of your physio experience? I was. I was clapping. I was absolutely clapping the the key workers in that respect. But um, I've spent the whole of lockdown waiting for a scan, and um, throughout that time, the physio I had, I told her that none of the exercise I, the exercise I was given. We were inflaming my leg, um, make things worse. So I was then given a set of exercises which, which don't involve any movement whatsoever. So I was doing those for about six weeks. Didn't help. Spoke to the head physio. physio. He suggested like swimming, which obviously can't do. <laughs> That's helpful. <laughs> so um, I've, I've literally been, I can't walk anymore more than 600 meters without inflaming my injury. So I went to, for a scan on um, yesterday and the doctor there pretty much said, I'm not really sure what I'm meant to be discovering in this scan because you've already had one. I can show if you've got a hernia or not or like a major muscle tear. But I'm assuming you don't. I'm like, well, yeah, obviously I don't. So having waited the whole of lockdown to have this follow up scan. Um, yeah. That it was absolutely pointless. So thanks for that three extra months of uh, of just waiting for nothing. So I'm back to see the head of uh, sports sports physio for um, elite sports physio for the NHS next week. Um, yeah, I, do you know when you're? Have you ever been in a situation where you just think, I don't know, I, I just don't understand what to do here. Like I'm, I'm literally seeing the best person that supposedly is, and Every you know, I've, I've started from doing 70 miles a week comfortably for probably the first three months of seeing the physio. And I've also had an issue with my foot that's still not healing. And like now, 15 months later, I can't really walk, can't do any exercise whatsoever. Right? And yeah, well, I don't want to talk about it because I'll probably just cry. Oh. Yeah. So thanks, NHS. Thanks. <laughs> Oh, go on. I want you to cry. Can you cry? <laughs> cry, please? But but let's you were going to tell me something about. Well, firstly, 
let's think let's congratulate the 35 people or so who who ended up finishing the accumulator which i think is pretty good i don't I've, oh I've, yeah yeah that was that was really good that's pretty impressive 35 really impressive really impressive yeah. so if you don't know the accumulator listeners you had to do one mile on day one day two two miles day three three miles all the way for the month of may and 35 people managed it which i'm blown away by that's brilliant that's brilliant I don't know who else, who else managed it. I know that Ali did it. So who else? Who else did it? What the thing? The main thing that I liked about it was the fact that he said, "Don't no one's allowed to post anything till the last week." Um, <laughs> I don't, I'd like to know how many people started out and how far people got. Um, yeah, I don't think Mark got a sense of that. He either he's managed a few words, um, but he he just he said he wasn't tracking it and he just knew how many medals at the end. So. I, I think pretty much most people who got through to the last week made it because to get that far, yeah. you're already up to 23 miles a day, which means you've got to have a lifestyle that allows you to do that many miles every single day. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, exactly. I know. That's the thing, isn't it? Um, but the, I, what, I, what I love about it is that for a lot of people, it's probably going to be the biggest thing they ever do. And yet it's the most understated thing they'll ever do because no one no one else really knows about it or really cares and there's no real <laughs> isn't, finish. No isn't that running. all of running <laughs> <laughs> no one really cares about what you've done but that is, there's no finish line there's no medal ceremony there's no training build-up prep it was just this is probably the hardest thing you ever do not just in terms of running but in terms of the logistics of having to do that during lockdown every single day and so it, it's amazing what they've done but actually it'd be interesting to know if we if we spoke to all those 35 in like five years time if it's just essentially killed for them all challenges because how can you top it um well, yeah it's a good point actually do it for two months do it for two months end up with 70 miles yeah yeah i mean talking about big distances and, and having to do it in a way that you're not checked out on have you seen they've actually done a documentary on rob young no yeah it's it's, it's really it's well i what, thought what, what, what's it on is it is it a new documentary or is it one of the uh, amazon uh, this one flood, is just flood of running documentaries that are very very unwatchable i'm just loading it now so this one's on vimeo and it's it's only got six thousand views and it's it's i just find it it's, so if you're listening do batters and you, you don't know the rob young story rob young was a a runner slash ultra runner who was was caught cheating um absolutely hand down hands down caught cheating by um being in a in a wagon riding across america it's not um, an actual wagon a car an actual, yeah <laughs> no one expects that do they a horse and wagon. <laughs> yeah yeah he was moving a horse like it was, the right, it was the right kind of pace as well he goes yeah no, no one you didn't expect that no one expected me to go all amish uh on it. <laughs> <laughs> he was del delivering milk along the way across america yeah, that would be quite good wouldn't it that would be that would be the way to cheat the problem is if you're going to cheat Doing it in a in a in a full powered you know uh, like camper van or something like that doesn't work. But if you did it in the milk floats, you could be like, oh, you 
kind of get away. It's good. It's a kind of it's a bit. What's it called? That does about four miles per hour, doesn't it? Well, you do it in an ice cream van, and whenever someone comes to actually check you're doing the right thing, you just turn the music on. They'll be distracted. They'll run round to the sides. They'll be thinking, "Do I want a Mr. Whippy in '99?" But um, yeah, it's it's really interesting because so so if you if you don't know anything about Robert Young, do do a bit of googling. He was essentially a character assassinated. Oh, we have to, we have to add is that he denies that. Still denies it. Still everything. denies it. That's that's the key thing about it. It's not as if he's been found out and he's done a full like Lance Armstrong admission thing. So he denies it. So this is all alleged. But it's it's really interesting how. So this documentary I found probably one of the most unsatisfying documentaries it, I've ever it, seen. It, it, was it was it done with his, in conjunction with him with his permission or was it done as a as a, as a sort of an impartial overview? It was with him on board, and normally when you see a good documentary, the ones that are really good are where, like, you know, Catfish or... Is yeah, it, it takes a turn. Yeah, yeah Queen Icarus. Icarus, yeah, exactly. It's It starts off as one thing, and then it, it has to pivot, or it, it, it just a story twists. And, and this was a classic example of that, except I, I'm not sure why it didn't really... <laughs> It didn't explore post scandal very much, and that to me was so frustrating because I'm, I'm not sure whether the the film director wasn't really uh, didn't have the time or didn't understand really the the repercussions because I, I think this is really interesting topic for for sport in general, but particularly for ultra running when there's so many. Uh, I mean, the re this record, for example, the the Run Across America record. It's a very, very quick time, like a dubiously quick time from a period when no one really checked how, you know, whether someone actually did something. So, you know, I, I don't know whether this is time is a legitimate one he's trying to break anyway. But yeah, he, he, and, and, and it starts off right at the off, this documentary saying, here's, here's the first bit about Rob. And I was, that was going to be the documentary, but actually I've since found out all these things. But then it doesn't really go into, it doesn't analyze things too much. And the, what, what was frustrating about for me is what I think we've loved as a podcast is just the unraveling of everything else. And yeah. having, you know, having read his book and Dean and just looked at all of the little lies and, and there were so many things that it could have gone into. And it, it, it ultimately ends with the, the documentary maker trying to have a bit of a trying to have a discussion with Rob to understand what's happened, and Rob is is basically in de in denial. The documentary set maker has made clear to Rob that he thinks he's lying about all of this, and then he says the next time they meet, it's just as if everything's fine, and you know nothing's happened, and he's just continuing on. And so there is the, he, the, the documentary maker says, I, I think Rob's probably got some issues of delusion or, or some kind of mental health issues connected to being abused as a child or along those lines. So, yeah, it just, I, I, I think you should watch it still. It's called Run, um, the, the Rob Young story. But it's just, it almost now it feels frustrated that, there won't be a documentary made about this. And, and I guess for Rob, that's a good thing because there's no real benefit to him and it would get a lot worse. But yeah, uh, 
Shame, shame. Oh no! There's, we were, I think we were talking about this actually off the off the uh, off the recording um, a, a while back. That actually, there's a ton of documentaries out there now um, on Prime. A few more on Netflix. I'm not sure that quality is that good though. I mean, there's a lot of a lot of these documentaries. I, I wonder if they're just ones that end up in the, in a lot of these kind of like film festivals, these running festivals, mm. running film festivals and stuff like that. And they're kind of like they're really making up the numbers. But you need to have that dramatic tension, and then that tension has to be. That's the thing that makes that. Like you you, you mm. go into something like with the Rob Young. It has to have an explosive element to it, isn't it? Knowing what you know now, you're like something has to come to a head, and either it's going to be him walking out and, you know, refusing to cooperate with the documentary again because, you know, it, it you know, it hasn't gone his way or mm. there's going to be this big admission. It has to kind of go, go either way. You yeah. have to have some kind of like that dramatic tension in order to make a running documentary interesting. And the, I think the problem with a lot of the running documentaries that are on Prime is that, you know, people do, st- people who are incredibly capable runners who, and I'm not saying ultra runner, elite ultra runners are boring, but generally elite ultra runners are boring people. Um, they... We're talking to you, listener. We yeah. mean you. <laughs> well, I don't think you. we're talking to two banners. I use the word elite, which uh, <laughs> I don't. But they. Camille, yeah. we're talking to you. She's our only elite. <laughs> <laughs> Well, the thing is, it, it, it's all right. I think we're saying that because we don't tend to invite people on if if we if we think that they are uh, kind of like two dimensional in that respect in, in 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 the first place anyway. Because you know, yeah. they, there's a lot there's a lot of other boring podcasts they can go on to talk um, that about. And so I'm digging myself a hole here. Without I don't feel like there's much <laughs> by the, is there a point to what I'm saying? Yeah, a lot of those documentaries they have a very good runner who doesn't have a huge amount of personality for, for whatever reason, they're sure, whatever, doing a race, which they will easily finish. And you're like, I don't really know why I've watched this for 40 minutes. Somewhere, you know, they yeah. try and have this element of, oh, guy's got a blister or something like that. Got a blister that he's dealt with before. But someone who's very good, does a race, competes in it really well. And you're like, what, what have I, why have I watched that for? Like, it, was really, it, it, it only becomes useful. You're like, oh, I've never seen that course before. And now I got to see a little bit of it, but it's a dreadful sport to watch um, now, as a, as a as, you know documentary. Now I, I I know a an elite ultra runner who I think you're gonna agree with me that um they're not boring. Okay. Have we yeah, spoken yeah. about Elizabeth yet? Oh my God, we have we have corresponded on uh, WhatsApp about <laughs> it. So, be surprised. And go on. Yeah, it, it's amazing. The the, the 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 people have diversified in lots of different ways recently. I don't think this was necessarily around COVID, but it, it is a diversification. I think this is this like this. I just find delicious in every sense of the word. Um, so, if you don't know who Elizabeth Barnes is, uh, listeners, she is one of the top female ultra runners. She's won the the marathon sabre. So. Elizabeth has, she, she's, in, she's quite interesting because she was working as a management consultant and then became a full-time runner. And as part of that, she's got My Race Kit, which is a, a really good store out in a, something like Claxton-on-Sea, where you can go for go and try on um, Ultra Kit, get her advice. She also now does coaching. And so I, she's going through that journey that I think a lot of really good ultra runners go through, where they they turn pro semi-pro but actually how do you then have a career for the rest of your life from it 
And so Elizabeth has, has diversified more than most, shall we say, and she's now launched as a sex therapist, which in itself, I think, is, well, that's, is absolutely great. But what I love about it is that she's not separated her Instagram feed um, into a new Elizabeth Brown's sex therapy. She's just started unloading <laughs> her, her images into her Instagram feed of Elizabeth Barnes Ultra Runner. <laughs> well, that's may maybe. Maybe she has identified that ultra runners do have a uh, lot of sexual problems. And so <laughs> this, is, this is the way of getting it in front of that audience. It's, it's brilliant. It's utterly brilliant. I've not seen her Instagram feed, to be honest, so I don't know. Let me, I'm going to have a look. Have you You're kidding me. No. I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to say I look at it daily because uh, Briggsy might be listening to this. Um, it, but why would the, I why would I follow an ultra runner on on Instagram? That is a good point. But I mean, if if we're if we're quite honest, Elizabeth Barnes is an attractive woman. Um, I I also think she's aware of that as well. Um, and she, what I love about oh, it. Oh, oh, I'm looking at it now. I see what you mean. My God, it's not explicit. But it's the closest thing as That's great as possible. And I just love the juxtaposition. I love between... the like Chia next to a sex toy. <laughs> <laughs> That's the thing. It's there's no separation between discussion of ultra and images of ultra and then and then discussion of sex toys and it might be a picture of her looking out into the distance while she's just wearing um sexy lingerie. <laughs> Or maybe, maybe it's just a really clever way. You know, like where people go, oh, yeah, you know, um, uh, I've got I've got like a 14 year old niece who uh, no, sort of 16 year old niece who yeah, she's got 50,000 followers on Instagram. So, you know, I get, might get her to do my social media and you're like, right, OK, let's have a look at her Instagram and stuff. And you've got pictures of her in a bikini and stuff like that. Go, yeah, there's a, there's a reason we've got 50,000. Maybe this is just a clever way of trying to, you know, use that like influencer style, that influencer way of, 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 of you know, sassing it up, but what, but actually doing yeah. it in, a, in an authentic way. It is sassy, I love it. This is exactly it. I mean, the thing is, it, 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 I mean, I know these are your two obsessions in life <laughs> and it's almost the perfect Instagram for you as well. Throwing a bit of caffeine. But um, I was gonna say, throwing a bit of caffeine in there and that's it, you've also got the, the feed for your life. Elizabeth, if you hear back about this, can you do a shot, a tasteful shot, also with like a cup of coffee or something? <laughs> Is this her modelling? Well, th th see, this leads to my next, the next part of it that I, that I absolutely love. This is incredible. Uh, Ian Corliss, who a lot of people you'll know from Talk Ultra, he, well, I met Ian through, he does, he does photos at the Marathon Sabla. Um, he, he he goes. He, well, he's he's one of the big names in ultra running. He has done a lot of photos for for individuals, for products, and actually, those two are quite a partnership already because post MDS, they both would go and shoot photos when they um, were doing the Costa Rica challenge and various other races. And Ian, who I don't know very well, but he's been doing all of the sexy shots as well, and. That to me is just, is, well, I would say, if I was to, if I was to say, um, Elizabeth is a very fanciful woman, and 
I I don't know this, but I would always have suspected that Ian would definitely have a crush on Elizabeth because we all certainly do. And so to then go to that next level where he's been taking photos of her and her and her husband on their wedding day and on their wedding night, sexy ones. And it's just so intriguing to know how did these discussions happen? Oh, you know, at what point was it? Was oh. It... oh, I see. Yeah. Yeah. And so. Oh, this it... is good. It's and really, then it's, and then it's mixed in with a recipe for vegan bolognese. That's <laughs> <laughs> it's brilliant. Isn't it? It is. This is perfect. Maybe this is the. Maybe this is actually the few like running magazines and stuff like that. They've got it completely wrong. This is really what people want. They want to mix <laughs> ultras with uh, you know, relationship advice. Yeah, and and I I just I'd love to have been there when they had that first conversation of uh, Elizabeth going so Ian. Um, would you be willing to? <laughs> it's, the threesome, it's a threesome. It's the threesome discussion. So <laughs> we invite you into the bedroom. Elizabeth would have been there going. Um, so, Ian, I'm thinking about of uh, about being a sex a sexologist, uh, uh, and him being like his ears would have. Hmm. <laughs> and we need to get some photography. God, yes, 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 yes. I will. Yes, yes. I mean, okay, okay, okay. <laughs> I'd just love to know, and I don't know either of them well enough to know how that would have happened, but it just tickles me. Tickles me. Um, tickles me through and through. <laughs> this is great. I love. Uh, I. They do bad. I love the combination. It's almost like sex advice, ultra sex advice, recipe, sex advice, uh, nutrition, sex advice. So we have we have a few questions. I'm 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 fairly sure that this conversation will be reported back to Elizabeth and Ian and and our absolutely we need them on. We need them. We absolutely need them on it because if this <laughs> is it. I just want to know what the reaction's been from the ultra world because I think that's actually shows us who we are as people. Whether what has her, has her following gone up dramatically? Has it come down dramatically? Has it been down and up? You know, what has the, the nature of the messages? Oh, I want to hear some. People? I want to hear if there's if there anything, any any prudish comments. Oh my, um, there's got to be right. There's got to be. And do badders. The the next obvious question from us and our conclusion to this is, do you want us? That's <laughs> <laughs> gonna say. Are we not gonna? We're gonna. I think we should do, Jody. We should do some photos, post them on Bad Boy Running. Um, and say this is in honour of Elizabeth Barnes. Um, you can, if you need a sexologist, go to her. But if you don't feel comfortable speaking to a woman about it, we're here as well. <laughs> oh my God! Let's make it happen. Right, JD. This is our next. This is what we're going to do. The next three weeks, in a bit of time, we have to replicate all of the photos from Elizabeth Barnes' feed that we think are uh, quality enough, and we do those ourselves, okay? Oh, Deal. that's brilliant. Deal? Yeah, that's a great idea, absolutely. Boom, we're gonna tag Owen Ian in it, see what they say, and do badders. Um, we want you to do the same, okay? Well, we need a hashtag. Um, this is called an Elizabeth. <laughs> so hashtag Elizabeth. Um, get posting, people, get posting. I think every, I think every I think everyone everyone should um, add a little bit more sass to their Instagram because the thing is Instagram for like like runners Instagram feeds are boring as hell. Oh look, it's me running in a nice environment. Oh here's a is a 
kit lay here you know but i'd love it if there's a kit lay and in the middle of it there was like a <laughs> <laughs> did she do kit lays for uh, her nights maybe oh i don't know this is brilliant well um, yeah no definitely i think people need to sass it up a little bit hell yeah and this is all and this is all good stuff this is all stuff that needs to be spoken about um you know and i just think it's a good thing to you know i i love the idea of um uh, some prudish uh, you know ultra runners getting getting offended because they you know, they were looking for a vegan bolognese recipe and then they got i don't even know what that there's there's a picture of something and i have no idea what it is um <laughs> i i it looks painful you've got to find the nearest know. thing from your house that no. looks <laughs> <like> that. <laughs> it's interesting actually because it comes on to it comes on to something an, another thing to do with instagram and influencers that um um there's been a new uh, uh, tim sheaf in the vegan oh. world is it jody rainsford it's not jody rainsford no 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 it's not there's a guy there's a guy and it, it's always the guys that are the most vociferous and like call like meat eaters out and stuff like that and then they antagonize it and then they really get the you know vegan like uh, community behind them yeah. and then the, the problem with this guy is um he he was a bodybuilder and he yeah. turned vegan like five years ago or something um got a massive following from vegans and stuff on uh, on instagram uh, a guy called john venus venus um, venus yeah um venus. Uh, like a date yeah venus uh, yeah, clearly, clearly, I don't know his real name, but but yeah, um, he used to post pictures of how he used to look before. You know, he used to have terrible skin before. You know, went into so much detail. You know, he used to call people out um, about you know their, the science behind it. You know, big advocate. You know, his, his ch child, his um, his wife was vegan, and they had a child, and um, you know they were they were vegan, and they were you know always going on about uh, you know destroying the arguments about not enough B twelve, all these kinds yeah. of things. Yeah, and then. It just like there's been like these like rumblings and stuff for a while that he might not be fully vegan anymore because he made he made a couple of comments and stuff and then it turns out that he maybe he might have had fish or something at some point or or, or whatever um but now he's fully come out and said yeah he's done up why i'm not vegan anymore video and and of course the place is like lit up um but because because he's done that thing where he said he's an ethical vegan but he but you know he doesn't think it's a healthy um uh, thing so he's undoing all his own arguments it's utterly bizarre the day after we did that he signs a um a, a deal with a supplement company as well that's not a vegan supplement um... company. and so they, they, and that and now he's gone full the other way he's now it literally within the space of like two weeks of doing it he's posting pictures of himself hunting no yes so he's gone hunting and it's just like it's almost as though this character has been set up to and it's almost like the perfect person for, Do you think to, it's to, i mean it's just it's utterly bizarre it's it's gone it's just gone crazy i mean it only really affects like people in the vegan community it's just like just ignore it you know it's and, obviously you know obviously wasn't wasn't like you know it was obviously wasn't fully into it it obviously thought it was a very good um has he got bigger or smaller? Like, has, has, it, has his following gone up or gone down? Or well, his following has massively gone down. Um, from I, actually, I don't know. I, I, I that, that's only hearsay from what people have, have said. I haven't actually. I don't know what his following was before. His following will definitely have gone down. Um, on Instagram. Um, but then he probably gain a lot more because he is. He is. He is quite. Um, 
out there in terms of you know the sort of amount of promotion stuff but he's he's doing he has to keep putting out videos as to to come and to keep justifying himself and every time he does it he's like just stop doing it because people just finding your old videos and that's the thing they do that thing where they leave all their old videos up you're like yeah. if you were that anti-vegan but and the weird thing is his his brother is like um a uh, like a staunch vegan as well but he's a doctor as well and so he he has this you know this uh, it's just weird it's just weird how it happened with the whole um you know signing a deal with a supplement company and you know it's just like it, it's one of those things i'm just it, it's just funny that it's come after like the Tim Sheaf because everyone's just referencing. They go, "Oh, we've got another Tim Sheaf here who's gone, you know, fully into like he's gone from I will never eat animals because I don't yeah. eat and 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 if you do, you're a murderer. To um, I'm now killing them myself. <laughs> so I just find it well. It, it I, think, I, I don't think I don't I don't think it's necessarily a, a vegan thing. I just think it's an influencer thing. I yeah, it is. It, and uh, this applies to. Uh, this applies to probably to Black Lives Matters, to people picking up on stuff and building followings around it. But yeah, they're not actually being authentic around it. Well, but even I, I don't see why people care because to a certain extent, because you're why build up people as heroes who are they're just there's nothing about them other than they, they just say this one thing. Like if you if you're that singular as your personality, Rounded people don't exist as influencers anymore. It's it's not about someone who's having a healthy, fun lifestyle, who's balance of this, but you know sometimes they fray at the edges. It's all about that person's a strict vegan. That person's a strict this. That person's, yeah. that person's a, I'm always showing pictures of me not looking good. So then you're like, wow, how real is this person? <laughs> it's, all it's all labels, isn't it? That's the, yeah. that's the thing. Yeah, and, and then you end up having to live by that label and then any deviation from that label that some other people have, that you've given yourself but then you have to live by it. I mean that's essentially why people end up needing to take social media breaks if all these influencers yeah were, were, were living so, so authentically and so generally you wouldn't need a break from it for like two months three months or, or whatever because why, why are you having a break if this is your actual life and it's interesting given the context of you know, Black Lives Matter which is actually about not judging people, not pigeonholing people, um, and not discriminating against people. Whereas everything on Instagram is about let's pigeonhole. Let's yes, absolutely. I've identified you. I've put this label on you, and and I'm looking at you for this. I will look at all of these people as as role models. You're like, what the fuck? You don't need a role model. You don't need a role model. Yeah, a role model to be vegan. Come on. <laughs> I mean, that's it. a role model to not do something to remove something like it's not you don't need that like you don't need the, the if they're posting stuff up about arguments and things like that you don't need any of that stuff you know the arguments yourself go and research them you don't need it but it just i like that's the thing it just it's the it's the whole drama of it people just fucking love the drama don't they that's the that's the thing that drives you which actually i don't want to dwell on that term, but actually leads me on to why we were just very briefly touching on on um on black lives matters yeah um something um uh, this sounds weird saying it but um something's come out of it which may be to our benefit hello because you know that as a result of black lives matter the tv show cops which has been going for what years and years and years has been has been canned now 
apparently they got the idea for having cops from the TV show Cops. <laughs> Did they? Yeah, it was, it was a normal society before then. But, they, but the thing is, that thing glorifies the way that they smash doors down and you know, mess them. I mean, it does, doesn't it? it, it, it yeah. He never thought he'd be caught. Yeah, look he at this idiot. George John was coming to town. Um, and I think the point that you made, wasn't it? It was because it, it, it had like the reggae start to it and everything as well. Yeah. Didn't it? Like one of the things. But, but the thing, but, but, oh, oh my God. God. Well, that's the thing. That's the thing, is it? But I think the thing is, so, but this is, I don't think we picked up on the time when we were talking about it, like uh, in episode eight or whatever it was. It was the fact that the music to it is Bad Boys, but in the circle. Yeah. So now, if Cops isn't using it anymore, we can be the racist. We can. <laughs> no, we know the racist. Yeah. No. There's an opening for it as a theme tune. Libby's oh. been saying to me, it's about time we change the theme tune. Does she not like Pato Banton? She likes Pato Banton. I think she's just kind of sick of Pato Banton. <laughs> I think we can keep Pato Banton, but it might be as the end thing. I think Bad Boys... I would say, actually, that no one has ever played Pato Banton enough to ever be sick of Pato Banton until now. <laughs> Is that fair? <laughs> Are we damaging? Are we damaging the Pato Banton brand? <laughs> so you reckon we should try and get bad boys? Yeah. Well, the thing is, when I think about it, when you're running yeah. and people don't um, know bad boy running, it's the thing you get most sung at you at yeah, races. Yeah, it is. Isn't it? Yeah. And it is a damn good tune. It is. It is. Are we going to be tainted, though? With what? hard with the same brush of cop as cops yeah but no they don't really know that in like in America, it's it's um i think it's a weird choice of uh of theme tune for that it's really difficult to believe that they ever thought that was good um cops isn't really watched here is it it's not no, no when's it on i don't think you can even watch it unless it's on it used to be sky one i reckon it might did be. it really yeah they used to watch cops so again so again no one's watched it <laughs> <laughs> I mean, well, let's put it do badders. Should we switch from Pato to who was it? Inner Circle or Aswan? Inner Circle, yeah. Inner Circle, and well, firstly, this this is going to be a whole new chapter because we're going to have to find out who who's in Inner Circle, and we need to get in the Inner Circle of Inner Circle to get the permission from Inner Circle. Have I said Inner Circle enough times? <laughs> I think um, you might. Have. So, well, that's going to be my next my next mission is to. Get inside the inner circle. To, <laughs> to get inside the inner circle. Now, actually, the, given that we never follow up on anything, I've got something we need to follow up on. Oh, go on. But we've got to be careful about how we say this because we don't want to pollute our study. Have you seen any adverts about the Japanese mini trees that we were going to be trying to, trying to get through Alexa? No. You don't remember, do you? No, I don't. <laughs> no, we had a theory that our phones oh, and, yes. our, and our yes. Alexa and, our, and everything is listening to what we say to yeah. then remarket to us. So we were thinking of what would we never, what would what have we never seen an advert for? Bonsai trees. Yeah. So. I have not seen any adverts for them yet. I'm not being listened to yet by for bonsai trees. But the no do badders have posted in the group that I know of about bonsai trees, and they're not allowed to say the phrase bonsai trees in the group. If they do, 
that in itself could trigger Facebook to then target us with bonsai tree adverts. So it's always got to be, we need, we need a, a, a term, a code word for bonsai tree that we can discuss bonsai trees so we can find out if we are being listened to. So what is our phrase for bonsai tree so that we can then test? <laughs> this is getting really complicated. <laughs> so do that. If you're new to the podcast and you haven't listened to this, basically we wanted to see whether by mentioning bonsai tree enough and people listening to our podcast around Alexas and Google theories or whatever they were, Cortana's, whether that would mean we would start to be targeted by bonsai trees because we wanted to know whether this was 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 a thing but we can't talk about it in the group to feedback whether it's happened without it then disrupting our plans so how about hazelnut that's our code word for bonsai trees hazelnut okay yeah so project hazelnut so we're going to say bonsai trees a few more times to see if it then gets, if you have an advert for bonsai trees or anything related in any way, maybe it could be trips to Japan, holidays in Japan, super noodles, something like that. If you see these adverts, it's suddenly... so fucking weird. <laughs> this is your first episode. <laughs> I mean, what? Go and listen to something else. <laughs> I've lost by it, let alone. <laughs> Hopefully it will make sense, but let us know if you have adverts for bonsai trees following you around on the internet because of listening to this episode. But don't and tell listen. us that. Tell us hazelnut. But tell us hazelnut. Tell us about the hazelnut situation. Indeed. I can barely remember the bonsai trees. People were going in the group a week's time ago, hazelnut. I'll be like, what's going on with this group? And everyone's talking about hazelnuts now. I can't remember stuff. Okay. Okay. Well, we'll have a rethink. We'll tell you the code <laughs> next time. We'll tell you the code next time. But um, before we get on to our next guest, I wanted to do a few little updates on Corona before Corona um, hopefully disappears into the distance. Um, so we might be on the, we might be on the, on the uh, second peak by this time yeah true true well i wanted to say about i've heard about a race in ironbridge called july the third nice name interesting they to try and get races going on they are doing a five people every half hour setting off from 7 a.m three days in a row now that is yeah that is extreme right so they've got slightly different names so it's it's uh, July the third. Then they've got come the name for the the July the fourth be American Independence. I think it's some pun on American mm. Independence Day. And then they've got July the third, something else. But that is extreme, right? If you're a race organizer, having to go to essentially manning races three full days to try and replicate the numbers that you get normally. So I think we need to we need to support. Hopefully this will come out. Yeah, this will come out in enough time. We need to support um, July the third as much as possible. But have you heard of any other race organisers who are going to extreme lengths to just try to put something on that can cover the bills? No, no, I've not. Um, I think it's still it's still too much up in the air with a lot of things. I think that's uh, I think that's really ambitious. I think that's great. Yeah, I mean, amazing you can do it. And, and actually, hopefully, what that will do is create such a, a huge community. And such a, a huge pool of goodwill from all the people that run it 
that it will just set them up for being an amazing race organizer for all time um yeah but uh we've we've got to get on with our guest don't we because we, we need to leave time to do our wrap up at the end <laughs> <laughs> now Bellas, we've we have given a, a fairly extensive um intro but I, we've already recorded this episode and i've got to say i absolutely loved cam i just thought he was a legend in every respect um we'll talk about it more afterwards but uh Take it away, Nick. Lady Badders, we've been mentioning this for a while, that it's a possibility it could happen. And um, I'm probably more excited than I'm allowed to be as a bad boy runner. But our next guest, we we always like to talk as much about running as possible. So we thought we'd, we'd find an Ironman athlete who hated the running so much that he became a pure cyclist just to antagonize you as a listener so welcome to the podcast the the latest member of team idios cameron worth well that's like that's about as good a virtual crowd as what you hear in uh in syria at the moment (laughs) to the bundesliga but that's like about as boring as being in a room full of germans as it normally would be well they, um, they do actually hire us to do the the, the cheering for the bundesliga so it's, well, it's, it's interesting that you've noticed it's incredible i mean you i tried to watch a game i lasted about three and a half seconds and you just hear the ball and you hear them grunt and you hear them talking german and um yeah and then and yeah just it just really isn't that interesting and then uh, the other night i was I was listening to the spat to uh, Real Madrid's game on the radio, and it was amazing. I was like, "Wow, I, I think they must have crowds. Like, I've missed something. <laughs> I, live in, I live in Andorra. Maybe they, they've opened the country, and I didn't even know about it." I raced home, turned it on, and yeah, sure enough, they've just got some sort of virtual setup. But it's actually quite good, particularly the radio. Listening to the radio is brilliant. You had no idea that it was, um, yeah, that it was uh, an empty stadium. So. Did they did they get the racist chance in for the Italian league as well, just to give a real kind of local atmosphere, real true reflection? <laughs> well, I don't know. I don't um, speak the foreign language that well to understand that. So, <laughs> well ducked, well ducked. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so tell us, how did like pick a pick a lane, mate? Pick a sport. How? What's going on? Yeah, well, I did so terribly at all three of them the first time around that um, I felt like I could I'd, I'd cycle back through and see if I could have some success. So um, yeah, here we go, round so, two. For for the for the listener that, that doesn't know your background, bring us up to speed quickly on on how what journey took you towards being an Ironman uh, athlete. Okay, well, I uh, started in, in rowing. Um, I, I did rowing at school. I really wanted to go to the Olympics. It was the one Olympic sport that I was moderately okay at. Um, so, yeah, ended up a couple of years after I left school, I made the Olympic team. Um, and then uh, we didn't do very well. We got smashed. Um, we'd won the under Who by? Who by? By everyone. <laughs> oh, damn it. I was hoping it was going to be us. I had no idea. <laughs> <laughs> Britain. That was one country who did break. But, um, but uh, yeah, we won the under-23 Worlds the year before quite convincingly. But the step up at the Olympic level in, in a true Olympic sport like a rowing, you know, from underage to, you know, elite is significant. And um, anyway, we got smashed. So 
hung in there, but sort of that, you know, after the Olympics, it was sort of, for me, to be honest, it was always about making the Olympics. I never really liked rowing. I never actually had much of a passion for the sport. I just really wanted to go to the Olympics and, um, you know, which is stupid. I should have set my sights on winning a gold medal, but um, I didn't. Uh, and I went and I, I tried to sort of keep going because, you know, I was quite young and, um, you know, obviously have potential, I guess, at, at 20 years of age when you're at the game. So I did the Worlds the next couple of years and uh, the second year after the Games was 06 and that was um, at Eton actually in the UK and that was the last time I've ever rowed a boat. So coming to your country rowing, um, wow. we were fourth at the Worlds that year. So we're actually showing some you know good signs towards the Games but that was enough. We'd been in Europe um, for a long stint that year training um, and I'd seen so many cyclists. I remember seeing particularly Ivan Basso um, out you know, uh, training motor pacing. I think that must have been before the Puerto thing blew up. So he just won the Giro. We we're in Varese, northern Italy, and I remember seeing motor pacing and thinking, wow, that looks so much cooler than what I'm about to do in a rowing boat. And <laughs> it sort of stuck something in the head. And um, yeah, I did Worlds and uh, were fourth and yeah, missed out on the medal. And so that was pretty disappointing. And then um, went home and yeah, just got on a bike, started looking forwards. And, um, and that was that. Didn't look back again. Yeah. Was to to never row again after that? Was there a fallout or was there, were you at the time, did you turn your back on it in a distinctive manner or or was it more that you started to like cycling and and realise you could potentially transition? Yeah. So what actually happened was I'd been injured that year. We actually, we probably should have won Worlds pretty comfortably. I had tendonitis in my wrist and, um, and I'd had surgery about six weeks before Worlds. It was a bit of a rush to get back, but we were quite a good crew. And uh, it was better that I, we felt like it was better to take the risk and bring me back and, and go for it than, than put in a reserve. And, yeah, we won the heat easily, you know, as you would, you know, controlling the race. We won the semi-final easily. And I hit, you know, um, really quite unbackable favourites for the final. And it was actually in the final last couple hundred metres that my wrist blew out when the crew started coming at us for the first time and we had to actually respond and I just couldn't hold the oar in my right hand and um, yeah so I had to have a break after that Um, we still hung on for fourth pardon the pun um, just hung on Um, but uh, yeah had to have a break Uh, needed a few months for it to properly settle and and have a good you know tilt at Beijing and um, and that was when uh, I got really stuck into the bike and and at the end of that three-month period, I did the national championships uh, into the time trial and, and did quite well. You know, against we got some pretty good cyclists in Australia, Richie Port and uh, Cadell Evans, mm. uh, Michael Rogers at the time. I think he was world champion, Adam Hansen. Um, anyway, I was fourth. And um, the national team just immediately said to me, you've ever thought about changing sports? And I said, well, I have actually. <laughs> I'd love to change sports. And they said... Um, yeah, they said, well, you know, you, you've probably got some potential, you know, or the capacity to do it if you really want to do it. And uh, and I'd seen a couple of other guys at time, you know, growing up, try to change sports or do stuff, but sort of always go back to the other sport, which is a bit hypocritical of me now because here I am back cycling. But <laughs> one thing I knew I had to do was basically go go cold turkey. You can't sort of keep a foot in both camps um, mm. level. You know, the level of elite sport, any elite sport is so high that, yeah, you can't be, you know, yeah, hedging your bets, so to speak. So I I, just, I literally haven't rowed a stroke uh, in a boat since Eaton in 2006, not a single stroke. I've been on the rowing machine a few times, 
Um, and actually, it always feels quite good getting on there. And I always think about buying another rowing boat and actually doing a bit of it in the off-season just for something a bit different. But, um, yeah, haven't got around to doing it. So, um, yeah, there was no big fallout. Now, the, the national team, it was funny. My first year in cycling, I went in 2007, I actually came to Europe. And they just thought I'd come back for the Olympics. They thought, I'll give him a year. You know, he had a bad year with injuries and whatever. So I actually stayed with the rowing team in Europe for a few months and trained and raced amateur bike races. <laughs> and um, they ended up picking me for Worlds that year and I raced the elite time trial. And, um, and then that was it. Then I didn't go back to rowing. I didn't get invited to stay in the team hotel either. Wow. And do, and do you think there was, was there an appeal of, because, I mean, firstly, going back to that, Fourth, what was it like to be the person who essentially your injury cost yeah. everyone in the boat the medal? Yeah. Well, luckily, there's only two of us. Well, lucky or you know, not lucky. I mean, that's yeah, I mean, a really good friend. And um, to be fair, he, he, my friend, my mate actually, he actually ended up stopping as well. And um, at the time, and we were a very good crew, you know, I think, and and the decision was, I mean, I was happy not to race Worlds, he really insisted on it, um, and as a group, we made the decision, so I was, I was just so fortunate, he was so mature to say, well, mate, like, <laughs> the reality is we probably wouldn't have done any better, um, well, pro- almost definitely, probably wouldn't have even made the boat, probably wouldn't have made the final even, um, so, yeah, uh, very lucky that he was a, uh, He'd actually been to um, he'd actually been in into the UK. He went to um, high school for a few years in, at Eton College, so he was quite a well-educated young chap. And um, he's on the home surf. Quite philosophical about everything, and uh, yeah, and um, and after that, he ended up stopping as well. So um, yeah, so no, it was fine. And I'm still very good friends with the whole you know rowing community and keep in touch. And um, you know, I get contacted from time to time when they've got different issues and. Um, so no, it was good. Always welcome back. They've always said if I want to come back, especially now they've seen me go back to cycling. They've said, oh, you know, the Olympics. Is quite- <laughs> <laughs> Are you getting calls from ex-girlfriends saying, Cam, Cam, come on? <laughs> no, I, I, that was one of the best things I ever learnt in life. Was um, when I went to my first World Championships as a junior in 2001, Germany. One of my teammates, you know, it's sort of quite. As, national teams tend to be quite incestuous and. Um, one of my teammates, he said to me, he said, Cam, you know, he said, Worthy, I think, I think you're a bit, you're a bit different. You're a bit smarter than these guys. I said, oh, I don't know about that, mate. I don't do very well at school. He said, no, 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 with the girls. And I said, oh, I'll come again. He said, well, just while we're in Europe, let's make a pack. No shitting in our own backyard. So uh, no one from within the sport or anything like that. So no, I've never been involved with girls in the sport, um, any sports that I've done, actually. So uh, I didn't have that issue, fortunately. I've got a lovely <laughs> wife now, and we just had a baby, so it's uh, oh, congratulations! Oh, yeah. But then, um, it, I mean, is is it a very transferable? Um, do you think it is easy for cyclists to go and rowers to go into cycling, or, or were you just lucky in that respect? Uh, yeah, I think the the concept of um, cycling is, you know, you have to suffer. And, and rowing is quite a painful sport, you know. I mean, it's sort of like how much pain can you tolerate for that, you know, unique period of time, you know, of, of seven minutes, you know. It's obviously not a sprint, um, but it's not super endurance, you know. It's like that that fine line, six minutes, you know, five and a half to seven minutes, depending on what boat you're in, that you can really inflict a hell of a lot of pain on yourself. And then I guess in cycling, 
there's a huge period of the race where um, you know it's easy, and then all of a sudden it's you know extremely hard, and you kind of have no idea how hard that is going to be, um, and you just have to try and push yourself to the point to you know be as far forward as possible and 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 be at the front of the race for as long as possible, ideally you know longer than anyone else and, and win. Um, so I think that that concept from rowing. You know, just that feeling of, 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 of really being in a huge amount of pain and having to go on, especially when you're in a crew. You know, you could be, you know, absolutely blown to bits after the first 500 metres of a rowing race. You've still got four minutes to suffer and you can't let your teammates down. And it's amazing what you can get out of yourself. And so I think that those, that, those traits more, much more so... I, Personally, I've never noticed any similarities between the physiology of it. I mean, the training's completely different. The race, to, the race time is completely different. Um, obviously, one sport you're going backwards, another sport you're going forward. So I think a lot of it is just more a psychological aspect of it. People, so don't, why did... people, don't, people don't mind rowers. That's the difference as well. <laughs> yeah, generally a pretty good crowd. Yeah, yeah. quite good grounding. You know, going through a sport like rowing, I'm very grateful. And people always ask, you know, what's my favourite? I say rowing because obviously without the things I learned in rowing, I would have never had the confidence nor the ability or nor the work ethic, um, yeah, the ability to, you know, blend in with a group. I mean, you go to a, a selection trial in rowing and you might have to row with 10 different people and you're, you know, you have to get the best out of them because if, if you have a terrible race, that's going to affect your ability to make the national team, which then affects your ability to you know, race for world championships or go to the Olympics. So having the ability to, to blend in with it, there's no real sport like rowing um, that teaches you that. And uh, and obviously in cycling, it's it's very similar. You can, you know, not like your teammates, but if they're your teammates and you're at the race together, you've got to get the best out of each other. So, um, so you're saying you don't like your teammates? I mean, it came, that, that phrase came to mind very quickly. It was, that came, well, that stood yeah. right out there. Who is it? Who is it? Should I end up in a situation where I don't like my teammates? Should that ever happen? I'll be prepared. Yeah, I'll be ready. So how, how did you then transition? So you've, you're a specialist in six minutes and you decide that Ironman is the way to go. Yeah. Yeah, I've always loved exercising. I mean... I've, People often have asked, you know, asked me what I want to do for you know, years ago and I always said I'd love to just be a professional athlete. I've never known, I don't really care what, I wanted to play soccer in the Premier League, I wanted to play golf, I wanted to be a surfer, race Formula One, race motorbikes, I mean, a bunch of other sports that would have been way cooler than what I ended up actually doing. Um, but, um, yeah, I, I have always loved exercise and, and it was just really by chance, to be honest. I... In 2014, I sort of had enough of cycling. Um, I, you know, I came in with quite a bit of promise, I guess, just from the way that I entered the sport. Um, I was coached by some of the, you know, the best coaches in Italy, and obviously pushed into some of the biggest teams um, very early on, and they had some, you know, reasonable success pretty quickly. And which, which team, out of interest, which teams, um, which teams you win, and what type of races? Oh, like, well, Liquid Gas for started, you know, it's like, it was the biggest Italian team racing the Giro and, um, um, yeah, and obviously, so that was, that was, I guess, the big one and I did a year before that, I was meant to do a couple with uh, Androni, which is the same team that Egan and Egan Bernal and Sosa were with and um, Michele Scarponi, who was the team leader that year, who, you know, had a, we had a really great year and a um, lot of success and he was leaving and he actually wanted me to go with him to Lamprey and so I'd kind of got myself 
was able to leave the team, um, even though I was meant to be there for another year. But when um, some of the other teams found out that I was able, I was leaving. Um, you know, I got some offers from different teams, and, and which was Liquid Gas, and that was at the time the number one team in the world. So I ended up going there and, and didn't follow Scarponi. But um, yeah, that was uh, yeah. There was a lot of expectation. You know, I used to train a lot with Cadell Evans. I trained a lot with Ivan Basso. You know, I've always been surrounded with the best people, like always. And and to be honest, I've never really felt like I belong there. You know, I felt like I don't didn't deserve to be that guy training with those guys, like confide, being confided in by those guys. And and is, is that did you feel that based on the stats and your performance yeah. in training, or? Yeah, yeah. I mean, rowing. Well, cycling is very much a people tend to treat each other people based on their result sheet, you know, and not on the person. And that's something that I didn't really like either in the sport. I could have told you that and I've got nothing to do with science. That's, <laughs> yeah. how, that's how I imagine it to be. And I'm glad. Oh, it's, it's amazing. And it's amazing now the people that are nice to me, I'm like, mate, I have not forgotten what a dick you are. Like, <laughs> Ooh, what know? type of things would they do or say? Oh, just try and be nice all of a sudden, you know. And but, like, but what would they do before? Like, how how would people oh, be? Just ignore you, you know. You know, just just really make you feel like you don't, you know, deserve their time. Um, you know, people like that are like that. Just you know, if they get an opportunity to stand on a pedestal, they do. You know, and I've never appreciated that. I mean, I was always brought up to. I mean, I grew up, you know, on an island with. 300 people, you know, you didn't have the opportunity to, um, um, you know, pick and choose who was cool and who was not, you know. You where, did you, where did you grow up? Were you on Rottnest Island or something? No, it's smaller than that. Um, Lord Howe Island, actually. It's um, about 600k off, uh, so 400 miles off the coast of um, off the coast of Sydney, basically directly. Wow. Yeah. So, so are you the local cycling, rowing and Ironman champion? Uh, yeah, but there's one other guy, actually, Tim Reed, who's the uh, 70.3 world champion in 2016, and he's also very good. Um, and he and I went to school together. So, you know, we're actually wow. successful triathlon school dead, uh, in the, you know, 20, 20 plus years, 30 years later than <laughs> when we started. Um, yeah, so you grow up there. I mean, you ride your bike everywhere. You don't wear shoes. You know, you race around. You, you're obviously in the water. The island's... 10 miles long and half a mile wide, so you're never far from the ocean. Mm. Um, you know, there's a little golf course that my grandfather built, so I play that. Um, you know, you just – I used to climb palm trees to earn money. Um, I, had a, I had a tax – I was filing tax returns. Wait, wait, wait. Were you, was, this, was this some old pervert who was paying you, or was this actually for – was there no, a purpose of this? One of the biggest industries <laughs> industry on the island, selling Kentia palms. So you'd – Dead being, I mean, they're in the UK. I've seen them there. I mean, they're quite an expensive, fancy sort of palm that a lot of hotels and stuff have in their lobbies. Um, yeah, and I was, yeah, I was paying taxes from. I've been paying tax since I was six years old, so um, I was earning quite a bit of money because I was quite small and, I guess, reasonably strong and light, good power to weight. And so I used to be uh, all the all the older, you know, the experienced guys that would, you know, do it full time. Um, they would ask, they'd tell me all the, the trees that were too skinny for them to climb because they'd break, and they'd send me up them. And often they'd have the most, the most, uh, the most little um, seeds on them. So I, <laughs> yeah, so it was awesome. Um, but yeah, so growing up there, you learn to you know appreciate everyone. Um, not that 
It's not hard. I mean, yeah, you just it's, it's a pretty simple thing in life. Just be nice to everyone until they and, give you a reason not to be. And, and I guess do you think that's, that's – but do you think that is something that is true to cycling more than other sports? And, and if so, why do you think it is? Yeah, in uh, – I don't know what it is about cycling like that. I mean, it – yeah, you because know, to me it's like a working class sport, yet they seem like the biggest snobs on the planet. So it doesn't really add up. Whereas triathlons, the opposite, where you've got, you know, I guess quite an affluent sport, yet mm. everyone's extremely nice to everyone. You know, there's no looking down on anyone. I mean, it's pretty hard to look down on someone in an Ironman, for example. I mean, you could be some pot shot executive, you know, at uh, at Goldman Sachs, at you know, early thirties, and you go and do an Ironman for your first time and, you know, you've barely done any training and, you you know, you're struggling to get to the finish line with some, you know, with a, a 65-year-old grandmother who's doing a 30th Ironman for the year. You know, I mean, it's um, it's quite humbling, <laughs> you know. So uh, there's no really room for egos in an Ironman, that's for sure. I definitely really, you know, I, I really love the, um, the community. But cycling has sort of two sides. It's sort of like the peloton and then, and a portion of it, it's not all, everyone. I have a lot of great friends in the sport of cycling, which is why I'm back here because, you know, when I stopped, I, I stayed friends with a lot of the guys and um, and um, kept in touch with them. I actually had better friendships with them, I guess, because we weren't competing against each other. And um, um, But, uh, but yeah, in triathlon, oh, in, in cycling, the fans seem to be the, the really nice ones. <laughs> the athletes, uh, yeah, it's a bit... What does uh, Richie Port say to me once? He said, flick or be flicked, you know? You either flick someone or they're going to flick you, so you may as well flick them. And I, I'm i not much of a flicker. I'm, um, yeah. And do you get a sense that... Because I, I know that the, the tour was... It was known, for example, you, you, didn't, you didn't mess with uh, someone who's a tour leader because they'll just get the entire peloton to turn on you yeah. and enforce their will. Do you think it's based out of that power that people then treat each other out of the race badly? Yeah, I think as, as exactly, there's certainly a hierarchy, you know, there's a big hierarchy in, uh, in cycling and that comes from the top guy. And then, you know, everyone wants to be on top of someone, it seems. Um, and that, you know, I certainly do. Yeah. And that's really, and to be honest, I mean, that's probably the one reason that I, I feel like I've fitted in quite well at Ineos is that is the first time, first environment where I haven't sensed that at all. I mean, obviously, Dave B's the boss, you know, <laughs> there's no doubt about that. Yet, when he's with you, he talks to you, he, gives, he looks you in the eyes, gives you 100% of his attention, he's there, he's present, and he certainly lets you know that he believes in you and he doesn't treat you like number 30. You know, he, you, know you feel like he's talk, he'll talk to you the same way he'll talk to G or, or Froomey or Egan or, or, or whoever on the team um, and the staff, all of them treat you the exact same way. You know, the doctors check on you and, um, you know, the, the, the physios and whatever with injuries. And, you know, they not one person on the, in this organisation is like that. And, and so for me personally, that, you know, I, I really appreciate that and I think that's probably one reason why I've, I've been able to just seamlessly slot into, into this team. Um, and um, and it's great. I really, 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 really cherish that, considering the experience I had last time, which was what drove me out of the sport, ultimately. It was really, I just felt like I was around a bunch of people I didn't want to be around. I I didn't achieve the things that other people thought I would. Like I said, the people I used to train with and what they would achieve and what was expected of me. And, you know, and, and, and why do you think that was? 
I I don't know. I just when I went to races, I certainly wasn't motivated. I loved training. I would train the, my absolute house down. Yet I get to races and uh, um, you know, I'd sort of be told different things and told I didn't you know maybe didn't know what I was doing and was a bit stupid and I'd come from rowing and still had to learn and yada yada yada. I used to do extremely well at races where I was left alone, where I was left mm. at home or you know I could train for maybe two months at home and then go to the race and I'd do quite well and then they'd start trying to control me again and then I'd go downhill and then it'd be oh you don't you're dumb again and I just got a bit sick of that um, and I was 30 and I didn't want to get through the most productive years of my life and really have not much to show for it so that was why I packed my bags and headed off to the US and you know, to pursue a career in finance. And, um, yeah, uh, I ended up back in sport again. <laughs> so <laughs> I tried. I tried to quit sport. I, really, <laughs> I tried really, really hard. just didn't happen. What was, what was the aspect of it that you well, you were saying there that you're training by yourself and it allowed you to perform better in races? Was it, was it you said, and you mentioned there about controlling as well. Was it, was it, was it, was it just the mental aspect or were there training aspects to it that they try to impose upon you? Basically what it was, was, yeah, I, I was very good at training. They, the, the, also the mentality, I guess, in a lot in cycling is they need to be on you all the time. You know, there's constant scrutiny, you know, you, you're checking on your weight and checking on your, are you motivated? How much are you doing? What are you doing? How fast are you going? Yeah, yeah. Which you know, which is which is work. I mean, that's how the sport works. But you know, in in a sport like rowing, if you don't have self discipline, you know, nothing will get you out of bed at five o'clock every morning. You know, and, and minus five degrees on the water, and you know, your hands get that cold that you want to throw up. But you, you know, just got to get through the two hour session or whatever it is you're doing. You know, it could be could be quite miserable, and you need you need you need to be pretty driven and so i never had an issue with training in fact i'll do more than i should i'll never do less and and i eat well i do all those things well so you know in my own environment i feel like i can train extremely well and they would tailor a program which was probably catered to the big leaders that is sort of works for the champions but that was probably something that didn't really work for me um and so the entire team would have to lead well, basically, the, yeah, it was the same like, training yeah, plan. They're winning races, so they're doing the right thing. What do you, you know, you're not, and um, and so you know, races, you know, I, you know, for example, at home, I'd have you know cereal and you know eggs and toast for breakfast, and you get to a race, and they tell you you got to eat pasta, and you just get on the start line, and just feel like you've got well, literally half a ton of pasta in your stomach because you do, and felt like crap, and consequently, you know, wouldn't wouldn't go any good. In the race, maybe, maybe you're gluten intolerant. Have well, they no, checked? It's definitely, not, <laughs> it's definitely not a gluten intolerance, but it's just I just never did it. You know, I mean, whereas I compare that to being with Ineos and or with Sky when I first started spending time with the team, training with Froomey and so forth, and you know, I was actually obviously racing Ironmans then, but you know what we do at training camps and everything, we was actually very similar to the way my wife and I eat at home anyway. And then when I go to a race, when I go to say an Ironman, I would we'd always book a house. I I remember I you know huge fan of sport. I think he's picked up, and Carl Lewis is one of my heroes. And mm. what's everything I can on Carl. And one thing he did in LA in '84 was he rented a house in West Hollywood for his family and friends and whoever else that wanted to hang out in his little bubble. Use the term now, very appropriate. 
And so what he did was he knew the pressure would be extreme, you know, going for three golds, being the American, being the you know, star of the show. He would go to the track, warm up, compete, and go back to his bubble. He would sleep in the village, so he'd just come back at night and go to bed. But any time he had, like, downtime, hangout, whatever, eating, all of that, he'd be with his family and doing exactly what he does every single day because, you know, he, he, he trained there in, in, in L.A. anyway. That's where he was living, at Santa Monica Track Club, obviously pretty famous. Um, and, yeah, he's like, I've done all this work to get to this point. I'm not changing anything. You know, I'm just going to go through the motions. So I was like, right, I'm doing my own sport now. I get to sort all this stuff out myself. So we always book a, a house or an apartment or a house or, or whatever. So we've got our own kitchen. And, you know, we actually usually we take the dog pretty much everywhere with us too between here, here in Europe and um, – and when they're in the US and it just feels like any other day and uh, I get up and, you know, my results have been very consistent and and being with Ineos has been very similar. You know, we have a chef and they're, what would you like? And I say, oh, at home I have this. Oh, no worries. You know, how do you have, you know, and they'll, they'll do that. And and every day, you know, you I feel good, you know, at the races I've done, the few races I get on the start line, just feeling like any other day, you know. It, you're just going to work. You know, you do it every single day and um, it doesn't seem like a big deal. Whereas in the past, it was like you get to the race and all of a sudden everything's different and all of a sudden you're meant to try harder, you're meant to push harder, you're meant to do all this. And the reality is, you know, the, the success for a race comes from the work you've done in the months leading up. Not You're not going to magically get it all done on that day. Yeah, you might have to do a magical performance, but that's as a result of the preparation, not the other way around. That's really so, interesting though because I... I've always been a uh, an advocate of having, for example, magic trainers where I only use these ra- these trainers when I'm racing because they're extra special. And when I put them on, I feel as if, hey, here we go. This is this, this is my um, my edge. This is it's go time. Mm-hmm. And actually, you're trying to. You're trying to remove everything that I'm trying to generate, the excitement, that not necessarily the pressure, but the the feeling of, oh, yeah, 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 that positive loop that I get when I race. You're almost trying to do the opposite and just bring, normalize it all. Yeah, not – I mean, yeah, okay, I'll kind of rephrase that a bit. That I have that stuff too, you know, different kit, different, you know, wheels, different things that I can't wait to use on race day. But it's just that – physical state you know that that ability of just knowing you're ready to go and no matter what happens you know come hell or high water you know good or bad day you're going to do a pretty good result and that is the key um you know consistency and that is what sort of puts you at the top of sport when you can be consistent um so yeah i mean there's little things i mean like now we have you know a training kit you know it's bright orange so cars can see us um and then we go to the race we've obviously got the distinctive you know black and um, our own, you know, coloured Ineos kit, um, and that's what we wear at racing. So, you know, it is quite exciting to go and pull that stuff on. But, you know, I'm just sort of really more thinking about if you just t- take the naked body that's going to get on the bike, that part. <laughs> that's mm. the part that I I make sure is is right. Uh, and then all the other stuff sort of a little bit placebo. But knowing that that, that other big bit's right is um, is very comforting for the brain. Now, we, um, I always like to try and put as much pressure on JD as possible. So he's, he's got his first Ironman coming up, let's say in the next 12, 12 months, 18 months. We've had two Ironman athletes on so far, um, and they've told us what their first Ironman time is. What was your first, your time of your first Ironman? Uh, 
I think it was around maybe nine, <laughs> maybe nine and a half. I, I'd have. To, it was in Whistler. I wait. I could work it out. I think I rode. I swam around an hour. I, this is a good. This is actually a good lesson. First timer. So it was my first, you know, time in a wetsuit. Um, and I'd never worn a swimming wetsuit ever. First time in a wetsuit. Yeah. So the Vaseline. So I'm like organised. You know, all g'd up. Got the Vaseline ready. Lather my body in it. I mean, I, there wasn't a bit of my body that didn't have Vaseline on it. Wetsuit just slid on like a, you know, like a sausage, um, sausage skin. Um, and yeah, felt great. You know, move everything as you should be able to, and jumped in the water. Um, swam out to the start. I think God, it's a bit foggy. Anyway, swam out. I started to pull the goggles up, have a look. Couldn't see. Saw the start line. Okay, it's over there. Swam over. Still a bit foggy. Pulled the goggles up. Checked I was on the start line. Anyway, all good. Gun goes off. Goggles are on. Off I go. Bang, 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 bang. Then no one. I can't feel anyone. I, I just don't. I'm thinking, wow, I'm winning. So I'm just going for it now, gassing it for a couple of minutes. <laughs> Still nothing. And I'm thinking, I also can't really see. So I stop. <laughs> Everyone's about 300 metres in the opposite direction. And I've got a beside me saying, mate, where are you going? And uh, put the goggles back on, start going again, still can't see. And after about, not that long, probably about 30, 40 seconds, I like realise there's something not right here and pull the goggles off and I put Vaseline all over the goggles. So I couldn't <laughs> see. So, there's a little tip for you. Just be careful with where you put the Vaseline or use that bodyguard stuff now. It's like a deodorant stick. That's what I use these days, a bit more high tech. Um, but, yeah, I swam around an hour. I think I rode around four and a half. It was a pretty hard course. Um, I think I was like 15 minutes or more quicker than the professionals. I actually almost caught all of them because you start behind the pro women. So I went through all of them, and I think one of the men got off in front because we started about 15, 10, 15 minutes behind. So four and a half, that would be – yeah, so it was around nine hours, and then I ran three and a half hours. Well, I wouldn't say I ran, but I kind of waddled. <laughs> Yeah. So, because getting into it, JD's coming from the reverse situation where he's uh, he's experienced at ultra running, but uh-huh. has only just bought a bike and is only just learning to swim. Uh-huh. I mean, what would your advice be for? Should you focus on your strengths, or is it more important to actually train in the disciplines that you're weaker? Um, I would say. That you, yeah, you definitely want to capitalise on your strength. If it's your swim, that doesn't help much. <laughs> Obviously, having said that, you know, it, I always say to people, the first thing, if you want to do an Ironman, is make sure you can swim because that can really set you down. When I, mean, I was lucky, when I had never done any swimming, I'd never done, you know, I hadn't done much, you know, training. I obviously grew up on an island, so I knew how to swim. I knew how to float and. And you're kind of racing all the time. And I did sort of surf lifesaving as a kid when I moved back to the mainland. So I had the basics of swimming. And then coming from rowing, you understand how to move through the water and connect with the water, etc. Um, so I was okay. Um, but if if you don't get off to a good start in the swim, I mean, that can be pretty traumatic. There's a lot of people are petrified of that. So for starters, make sure you can competently swim that distance. Don't worry too much about the time because – difference between a good and a bad swim is, you know, 10, 15 minutes, maybe, if you're a bad swimmer. If you're a really good swimmer, it's a couple of minutes. It's nothing. 
um, because the difference between a good and a bad marathon is an hour or two hours or mm. three hours sometimes yeah. if you're walking. So, um, so and do you think if if you're not going to be at the front, is is do you think it's almost better to be out clear or right at the back and? Yeah, if you know if you're not used to having people around, just swim your own race. You'll you'll end up finding a group. It's impossible unless you're really, 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 really incredibly slow or really, really fast that you're going to be on your own. Um, there are so many people in an Ironman on the start line that there's always going to be someone at your level, and they start in waves too, so you're always catching other people, etc. So yeah, just if you're just not competent, just you know, just just get through the swim. Just train for the swim so you comfortably can swim 4K or 3.8. Um, especially if it's in a wetsuit, it'll be even easier. So if you can do it comfortably in a pool, you know you're going to be just fine. When you pull a wetsuit on, you're out in the open water. You know, don't panic. And then, yeah, from there, um, regarding this, the bike or the run, yeah, there's obviously a significant crossover in the fitness between the two of those. So, you know, if you're more confident at one of them, I'd do your majority of training in that. And then... Again, um, you know, with a bike. For example, if you're a stronger runner, I'd do most of your running. I'd train like a runner and, and just make sure that you can comfortably ride, you know, 180K. Um, I wouldn't worry too much about training the house down on the bike, um, you know, strength-wise or efforts-wise or any of that sort of thing. Just on the day, just sort of plough through it because you're going to be, you know, you'll be you'll be plenty fit enough and, and then you mm. want to be able to get on the run and, and that's where you can obviously make up the biggest the biggest biggest gains again you know on the bike the difference between a good and a bad ride is if for a bad ride is an hour you know it's a good and a bad if you're, if you're strong it's only five or ten minutes whereas the run is the is the one that really pins people unglued so interesting i've always thought that actually the cycle kind of made or break it all because it's so long if you're a cyclist, i mean if, it, if you're a cyclist it can really be an advantage because you comfortably can ride quite fast i mean that's the other thing with me i mean there was a lot of I guess angst, you know, that I was just coming in to ride and trying to break right. Well, that's bollocks. I was there to try and win the race. And I, I mean, I've never ridden as hard as I can in a, in a triathlon. Um, they've got no idea how quick I could ride if I wanted to. But um, <laughs> trying to, I'm trying to win the race. And that, I guess, is shown by the you know amount I've improved on the run over the years. And, and I haven't slowed down on the bike. In fact, I've probably even got a little bit better on the bike as I've done more running training because I've just got overall stronger legs. So, um, yeah, so I, I've, you know, particularly last year, I, I didn't ride my bike much at all. Um, but I actually, yeah, you know, I had some, some of my better races in an Ironman, you know, on the bike and, and then obviously ran quite well. So, Cause yeah. did you was, was that first race, were you, were you approaching it thinking this could be my next career or was that more just to scratch an itch? Yeah, no, that was just, I'd been at a sales meeting, I, I I still, when I stopped, I still had a contract with Canada with the, with the company, and at the time they were merging teams, and so, um, you know, they obviously asked us all what we sort of wanted to do, and I said I wanted to stop, and they said, well, you know, we'll honour your contract if you come to the US, and we understand you want to work in finance and get a job and all that, but, you know, it's it's always better to get a job if you've got a job, and so, which was yeah. great of them. I mean, it was really nice of them to do that. So when you're going around meeting these people, you didn't look desperate, and, um and that made a huge difference to the sort of, you know, uh, opportunities I was uh, sort of offered and the people I was able to meet and spend time with. Um, and um, and so, yeah, I was at their sales meeting in, in 2015 and there was a guy there that had cerebral palsy and he'd, he'd done an Ironman. And two years ago, he'd done Kona two years prior 
and he still he broke something like thirty bones in his feet. Whoa! And two years later, he still had two fractures. And I, after hearing that, I always wanted to do one, but you know, never really thought about when I would do it. Just one day. And I went to the sports market and I said, when's the next sort of activation, you know, where you could get me into an Ironman? I didn't know how you went it or whatever. Um, and they said, oh, there's, you know, we're actually being uh, Whistler in two weeks' time. And I said, um, great, can you enter me? They said, oh, Cam, don't be stupid. Like, do some training for it. Do it properly. You could probably do quite well. And I said, no, stuff that. If that guy can do it with cerebral palsy, <laughs> I'm just do it. You know, I mean, and I obviously that year I'd been doing some grand fondos and different events for them. And, you know, I still always rode my bike and obviously kept active. I wasn't unfit, but certainly hadn't trained for the best part of six to eight months compared to normal. Um, and, um, yeah, so that was that. I went off and did that. And that. Was, and what was that first marathon like? Had you run a marathon prior to that? Oh, God, no. No, I mean, the furthest I'd run was maybe 10K. I just, I just decided, so Richie Port and I had done a ride a few years earlier, 400K. And after about 200K, we got sick of eating. And so we started drinking iced coffees, like what you get from Starbucks, but in mm. Australia, way better. Um, ice breaks, they're called, or Farmers Union. And they just felt awesome. We had fuel all day. Anyway, so first Ironman, thinking long day, I thought, beauty, lucky I got that experience. So I had a caramel frappuccino uh, <laughs> in my transition bag after the swim, scuffed that for the bike. And then after the bike, I had another one before I started the run. And not only that, but I actually had one of my special needs for halfway through the run. And I was certain that you know, I would have plenty of fuel just to keep shuffling along. And I thought, right, just don't walk and just somewhat try and resemble the jog. And I'm sure... That's, that was the only energy you had, just that, frappuccinos. Yeah, that was too much. <laughs> yeah, well, I didn't need anything else. You know how much sugar <laughs> They're amazing. Um, and uh, I was confident I'd run around four hours. I ended up running three and a half. I didn't have a watch or anything. I had no idea what the time was. Um, but... Um, yeah, so that was that was my experience, and um, I ended up I think I was ninth overall, and obviously the first age group, so I qualified for Kona. So then I was like, you may as well go to Kona. I thought, great, this is a cool year off. You know, I get to go and do Hawaii. Um, but then I broke my foot six weeks before mountain biking, so um, I still went, but that marathon had to do with a broken foot. So that was quite a that was that was interesting. I just wanted to make sure I finished before the sun went down. Oh, so did you walk that in then, or were you, were you actually I trying to run on it? It hurt too much to walk, uh, so I had to um, sort of shuffle, you know, like keep your feet close to the ground and just sort of shuffle along. Um, yeah, that was that. And were you, were you not worried about permanent damage? Oh, yeah, but I didn't have any intention of doing sport again, so I thought I'd be able to... <laughs> The fractures were pretty significant. I mean, they were displaced, like they had to be reset. So, I mean, I thought, worst case scenario, they can just break them again and stick them back together. Um, so, uh, yeah, it was ended up being fine. Um, I'd got the moon boot off about a week. It was about eight weeks before and about a week before I got the moon boot off, so six to eight weeks sort of healing. Whoa. Fortunately, I was able to, you know, um, get through it and, and didn't have a stress fracture or anything from it. I mean, it was quite sore for a bit. But and do they, I hadn't walked on it for eight weeks, <laughs> so, yeah. And do they make frappuccinos with painkillers in, or did you have to create oh, your no, own no. concoction for that? Didn't do it in Kona. I mean, it's too hot there. In Whistler, it was raining and miserable and horrible, so it was perfect weather. It kept it nice and cool in the bag. But, um, yeah, no, in, in Kona, I just uh, enjoyed the smorgasbord on the course. 
you know, Coke, it's amazing how, like, Coke is, obviously, Coke is black mate. Everyone loves a Coke. Mm. I mean, when I, I loved going on my long runs because my coach always says, oh, can you get someone to follow? And I'm like, no freaking way. I love stopping at the gas station to get a Coke, you know, after an hour. Especially if I, the only thing I'm motivating me to do a three-hour run is, like, two Coke stops, one after an hour, one after two hours. And um, But in an Ironman, you get cups of ice. So, you know, when you start really hitting the, you know, I, I, I'll grab a couple of ice, I'll grab a cup of Coke and a cup of ice and I'll pour the ice over the, or the Coke over the ice and chill it and then drink it and that really gets you going. <laughs> do, do you think then, is it better to, because we're almost trained to be exclusively food for marathons and ultra running. Yeah. Um, it's, it's quite rare unless you're doing like a desert marathon that you're going to load up on, on, energy drinks um i mean is is it something that you think is worth exploring for doing iron man's is actually mixing it up a little bit your fuel sources yeah i have um when i'm on the bike i try and have some solids well when i say solids i i've started um i, I used to just have gels but i yeah i don't really like all that concentrated sugar so I, last year i moved to um blocks and a few gels sort of half and mm. half more recently, the jelly, the uh, Enervit jellies, um, and they're what I really like. So I have sort of probably six of those Enervit jellies and six gels as opposed to, you know, 12 or 14 gels. Have you um, tried the margarita or ginger beer um, shot blocks? Yeah, I have. Yeah, I love both of those as well. That's what I get. It's just that I really like the jellies, and I just happened to get a bunch of them in Italy when I won that race. And as in, I got them before, and I used them as well in Kona. So, um, but yeah, either or, it's really pretty interchangeable on that front. But then uh, on the run, I have um, like, well, you guys have, yeah, it's, a, it's the SIS, the beta fuel. Um, mm, mm. So I use that, but it's called, we call it the classic fuel. It's a team, one they made for the team. I'm not sure if they sell it, but it has uh, basically the same, it's like a gel and a um, effervescent tablet, you know, an electrolyte tablet in one serving. So, um, but it's it's isotonic, so it goes into your system quite quick. So I, I try and have one of them every hour because we have our own special needs tables. So I try and have one of them about every, well, yeah, sometimes I have three of them. Every 10K is, is ideal. Um, and um, and then maybe a gel as well in the hour. So um, Wait, so that, that, that effervescent gel combo, is that a drink then or is that? Drink, yeah, it's called classic okay. beta fuel. But I don't know if the beta fuel has has the the salt in it it didn't originally mm. i'm not sure if they've changed that now i think they might have but i just yeah I, I just use the classic fuel because it comes in a convenient 30 gram sachet which is as i said exactly a gel and a tablet basically the mix um and i know what's in it so then you can mix that in, you know a couple hundred mil of water in a nice small bottle and it's easy to sh shop down mm. so um that's what I tend to have. Yeah, that's what I have predominantly on the run, uh, and and sometimes I don't have any gels. Um, so, um, which and did you like, did do you think with your running then? Because the the articles I've read and things I've seen, it looks as if if you could just improve your run, you could come out you come out of the cycle doing incredibly well. And actually, that's the bit that you need to catch up that, that could allow you to win the whole thing. Yeah, it's like was that? How did you? Like when firstly, when did you realize that you were so good, and at what point like how did you then change your training to try and focus more on the running? 
Um, well, to had to make a step change because it was something I'd never done before. Um, and uh, I guess the biggest thing was starting to work with the guys at Nike, with um, with Brett Kirby particularly, who obviously was you know quite instrumental in the original Breaking Two project and, and works really closely with Elliot and Patrick Sang. Um, yeah, how how did you manage to do that? Because you were training with Broom and also Kipchoge, yeah. <laughs> which is insane. Yeah, yeah, and um, yeah, and I mean, even my swimming coaching um, is is the best in the world as well. Uh, but um, yeah, so uh, I was at Red Bull in um, LA after mm. 2017. Um, they've been, you know, wanting to have me as a Red Bull athlete for a while. Just different things so it hasn't really worked out thus far I mean I'm sure we will do something eventually but um, mm. obviously I've got different partners and different things so it all has to match up um, and uh, but they've been extremely helpful and one of the things was you know wanting to help in any way they could and, and so we were just talking about my running and they said well look we know the guys at Nike how about we give them a call and they called Brett and, um, and Brad Wynn one of the guys there and um and yeah, we had a call and chat, and they're like, Absolutely, "We'd love to work with you." You know, that sounds really exciting. You know, I mean, someone that really couldn't run, you know, much. I mean, I'd run like a three ten marathon or something at that point, um, and you know, do the do the work and and see what we can get. And the first year was sort of very much you getting to know each other. Um, There's a little bit of structure. That was 2018, uh, but but not too much. Um, it was just more advice here and there, sort of making sure I didn't get injured. Um, you know, keeping me from doing too much. You know, I, I definitely had had some problems when I tried to sort of take running a bit more seriously in 2016. I tore my calf muscle a couple of times and basically didn't run mm. all year. Um, and so there was that part, obviously the shoes. Um, you know, I was very fortunate. I kind of started that when the when the breaking two shoe came out. So that's how I learned to run in that type of shoe. Um, so I run very much on my forefoot, which, mm. you know, benefits quite a lot from that shoot um, and then in 20 at the end of 2018 you know we had a reasonable season I was able to run three hours for the first time and then um, and then I actually ran a low 250s marathon but it's sort of a dead flat course like quite a cold day and you know it might have been short I don't, anyway I don't really put much onto that but I ran 304 or something in Kona that year and I was ninth uh, as opposed to 317 the year before. So it was, it was quite a significant improvement. And, I'd and what was the distance to first from from that time, that performance? Oh, oh long way. I mean, Langer ran 240, but I think I had about a 10-minute lead off the bike, so he beat me by about 15 minutes. Um, You'd need to get down to kind of a two... Well, actually, it's yeah. not, not that quick a marathon time to stand a chance of winning. No, no, about a 2.45 in Kona. Yeah. You know, I'd be certainly in the mix with what I can do on the bike. Um, but so that was sort of a big improvement. But then that was like, okay, right, you've, you've led the race until halfway, you know, you then – and that was also I kind of gave up a bit, you know. I mean, it's pretty demotivating when everyone runs past you and you're mm. in a marathon. It's pretty hard to respond after eight hours <laughs> to, to <laughs> running quicker than you. Um, and um, – and so I was quite sort of down about that and really wanted to make a real change. And so that was when we sat down and they'd had the experience with the breaking two thing at that point. Um, and, you know, Elliot was going to go for it again. Uh, so we had a bit of a template that I could kind of work in tandem with him, I guess. Obviously, I've, I've actually still never met him. Um, he was over here at one point, but I'd actually left 
a couple of days before to go to Australia um, when he was in, um, in Monaco. Um, and uh, he, he met Froomey and, and I, I coached Tim Kerrison. Um, but, um, yeah, we I basically just followed his program and, and that's the key sessions I would do the same thing. Um, and that gave me, you know, when you know that someone like that's doing what you're doing it gives you a fair bit of belief in what you're doing, and that was quite, in, you know, quite hard. You know, I mean, running 100k a week and trying to ride, and or even trying to run 100k a week when you're not a runner is quite hard in itself. And for mm. probably two, three months last year, I basically only ran because I couldn't, I didn't have the energy to ride or run, uh, ride or swim. And um, so what, what was the theory behind it, though? Because surely his training plan is so bespoke to partly the needs of just a marathon not a marathon after an Ironman but also based on the the ability that his body can take having done you know, eight yeah. years when you talk about following I mean his volume might be 160 to 200 plus k a week I was you know 100 120 I mean I was missing out a lot well, a lot in speed of distance, but also quite a few extra sessions, which we thought it worked perfectly because he has a lot of extra sessions where, you know, like a recovery run or whatever that I don't really need to do um, that I can swim or ride in. And so that was like the idea that we could ultimately blend everything else in around the key structure of a marathon program. And, um, and, and what did that structure look like out of interest? Was it kind of a standard long run Sunday, um, intervals Tuesday, tempo Thursday or? Well, firstly, I everything I do is on Strava. So you can go back and geek out on that. To the <laughs> um, and no, it's it's not that. It's, um, uh, yeah, we the mid, the long run we actually do during the middle of the week. Um, to, well, yeah, Thursday. I think, I, I think the weeks, yeah, usually we start, if I start Monday, yeah, it'll be a Thursday, um, long run. I think uh, Tuesday would be the track and then the weekend would be some sort of fartlekky type session. And the other runs would be either, you know, just a build run or, you know, general run. So you're not, you're not doing kind of a tempo pace run in there where you're, you're running math and pace for you know, 10 miles or so? Or... No, 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 never, um, never. But wow. the, the, track, the track work, funnily enough, we don't do, you know, it's not like I don't try and run fast. You know, I don't try and run a three-minute K. You run at marathon pace on the track. And a lot of the track stuff was more teaching your body to just get used to running that pace. So try not to look at your watch and just try and knock out consistent laps so your body felt, you know what it felt like to run that pace. So if we set my, if we figured my target flat marathon pace was a three with a 230, Mm. Um, you know, what I'd be maybe capable of, which I'd say I probably could do. You know, I wouldn't run any quicker than 3.30s on the track um, and just got to doing that as efficiently as possible. Heart rate get down, your cadences sort of drop, you know, you just become more and more efficient at that. How, how long would the reps be? Oh, you know, just standard, you know, 10-mile 10, 10 efforts. So, you know, it's usually around between 10 and 15, 16K of work. Um, okay. And then you know, couple, you know, a couple of minutes of rest between each one, and and that would off that would that was walking. It's not jogging or anything. It's walking, um, and so it's mo it's more of a motor pattern thing. Their track session, obviously, Elliot's knocking around at two fifties because that's what he runs a marathon at. But mm. I think the most fascinating thing was 
leading into so I did Ironman Italy, which was the which is now the best. So I ran three marathons last year in races. Um, I did a two two fifties and a, a two forty five, and that was in Italy. And then two fifty four in Kona. Um, you know, it's obviously a lot hotter. I was also pretty tired in Kona. I did Italy a few weeks before, which we thought was a good idea, but which I we still think was the problem was the travel getting from one side of the world to the other. I I mm. needed settled. And um, but Italy I did really easily anyway. Two weeks before that, so it was about four or five weeks before Elliot went to. It was a week before, so it was four weeks before he did the two-hour thing. Mm. We, did a, we both had a two-hour run, you know, long run. And I was here in Andorra, so I'm at 1,600 metres, pretty flat. I ran around 30K, 30 and a bit, 30.2 or something. And we are like, oh, that's pretty good. You know, you're going to run. We were really confident I could go to Italy and comfortably run a 248, 245, somewhere in there. Sure enough, I ran a 245. If I wanted to run quicker, I could have run quicker for sure. Um Elliot on the same day ran 40.3 kilometres in two hours. That is a back, like, you know, Brett would go, oh, great, you know, that was really good. Here's what Elliot did. You know, and just, mm. it's just been really, that whole team have just been really great with often reassuring stuff, like, yeah, yeah this is what Elliot's doing. And, and then often, like, look, yeah, you're going great, but this is where the best is, you know. I mean, not mm. trying to push me over the cliff, but just saying, like, just keep working. Okay. I love surrounding myself with the best people at everything in life in general. You know, I mean, I always want to be getting better, and so not many and, people better than him. <laughs> and, and did your cycling suffer during that period? Were you know what, what kind of mileage were you doing, and, and how did that relate to your performance? Um, yeah, it did. Um, it well, I just didn't really ride much. I certainly didn't do any efforts. I would just sort of ride and. Try and keep ticking over, but fortunately, we were confident that within a couple of weeks of doing some efforts, I'd get at least back to sort of to where I was, and maybe even be better. And in the end, I was a little bit better. But um, yeah, I, I didn't do any intensity at all. It was all running for a good few months. Um, so you know, I remember at one point for I think the month of February or something, I'd I'd done about uh, uh, what was it like thirty hours of of training, you know, like seven to eight hours of running a week, and I was gassed. <laughs> that was it. And Tim Kerrison said, I think we need to get it sort of up to at least 50 to at least call you an endurance athlete. I mean, <laughs> it wasn't much, but it, was, it hurt, you know, and, but I needed to go through that. And now I can, you know, comfortably drop 100K a week and, and train with the guys and, and do what I need to do to race on the road and swim 20K. And, yeah, it doesn't happen overnight, you know. you you got to do the work. There's no, there's no easy way about it. It's, it's what you've done for years. You know, it's not just what you do now. <laughs> so, so, yeah. so are you, are you then? Because my assumption, and it sounds like I've got this wrong, was that by joining Team Ineos, you were essentially just becoming a, a pure cyclist. Or is this an Ineos happy for you to do Ironmans, and is it all part of a bigger picture? Yeah, that's what it's about. It's about me trying to win Kona. And I spend so much time with the guys and, you know, I'm often training camps with them and they'll head off to a race and I'm often training quite well on the bike and they'll go to a race and they'll be short of riders through sickness and whatever. And Dave, Dave Brailsford invited me to the camp in December and I sat down and spoke to him. I said, listen, Dave, if there's, if there's ever a spot on the team, you know, where you want an extra guy that's sort of always ready to go, no matter where it is, you know, which country, race, whatever, three weeks, one week, one day, I said, I'm 
I'm always in pretty good shape and with a few days' notice, I, I'm confident I can go there and be much more help to the team than if you're a man short. And he said, look, Cameron, that would be great. Um, problem is we're, we're full. We've got 30 riders. But if, if next year or whatever, in the, you know, I'll definitely have a look at that because that would be really handy. And, um, yeah, anyway, one of their guys retired in January and they rang me straight away and said, Cameron, will you come back on the roster and, and be that guy? And I said, absolutely, let's do it. So, you know, the idea was it's it sort of I'll often do a week of riding with the guys, you know, pretty high at camps. We're actually in a camp at the moment here in Andorra for two weeks and, yeah, you know, it's um, it's pretty intense. Is, is that all 30 of you? No, just uh, four or five of us. Yeah, everyone's in small groups. There's uh, some other guys at Isola, Frumi and G are all at, um, in France. And obviously the Colombians are still over there. And, yeah, some guys sort of scattered about the place, some guys in the UK. Um, but um, so is, yeah. how does it because I, I I love the tour but I'm fairly towards towards most things outside of the tour particularly particularly the teams and the other races when I found out um, there are 30 members of Enios for one that blew my mind because I, I just assumed that everything was about teams of you know six ten twelves like what what are these what are the 30 people is it a case that the main riders in Ineos have a team of people they can train with um no i mean you 30 riders often you'll have three races going on so you need a lot of riders you know you need eight riders at each one that's already what's that 24 and then you've got a couple of maybe younger guys or guys that focus on the track and they might be off focusing on the Olympics or something, so they're out. You've got guys that are sick. All of a sudden, you're struggling for riders. So all the teams are quite big. There's never just one race going on. Sometimes during, you know, I guess while the tour's on, even then, there's always something that overlaps with that, you know. So, yeah, you need a lot of guys. Um, and then, yeah, obviously, certain guys will race together more prominently than others. Like you have the tour group, you have the Giro group or the Classics group. Um, and then you sort of have the, the rest um, that will spend most of their time together. You know, often you won't even see, we often joke, some teammates you won't even see all year. You know, you, you just don't even see them at a race or training or anything. Um, they just do a completely different program. So, And why why do Ineos enter three races at a time? Is it because they it's just constant exposure or that they need, is there good prize money for that number of races or do they need that many? Just, uh, exposure, I mean, it's just racing and, you know, obviously it is. It's a marketing sport. You know, it's all about TV and exposure for your for your sponsors and your brand. And, and not only that, it's also preparing riders always for, well, it's either a big race that they're racing, like the Tour or the Giro or the big classics, or if it's a smaller race, you're often guys are there training. like And like myself, you know, I mean, I'll be there, you know, getting some racing in the legs, which we all know racing is, you know, as always gives you that extra boost to training. Um, and um, and then, you know, obviously go to Kona and, and be ready for that. So that's uh, that's why there's always lots of racing happening. You know, you've got guys at different phases of their preparation and, um, and obviously different, you know, importance on different races and that, that reflects who's sent to those different races. Are you going to race um, as Ineos then during the Ironman Challenge? I already have. I've already raced twice this year. Um, like so, I, when they asked me to race, they, so I was in LA training with G and uh, Ben Swift, and they sent me to Australia three days later, and I did my first race in six years, um, a one-day race, and then flew back to LA and picked up. Yeah, um, oh, we'd left the dog there. My wife came with me, and we picked up the dog, and then flew back to Europe, and then I went and raced in Portugal, uh, the Volta Algarve, a one-week race. 
and then the shutdown happened. So yeah, I've actually already raced probably as much one of the most. I've probably raced one of the most on the team already this year. So um, yeah, I'll be I, racing quite a bit. I'd imagine. And, and and what kind of expectation is there on the needs of the team versus the needs of your races? Um. Well, the you know we've agreed that Kona is the objective. So. You know, I've already qualified for Kona. I've already done all that. As it turns out, it's been postponed till February, so it doesn't interfere with anything now. So they can really use me as much as they like. But originally, the deal was that up until sort of June, um, if I wasn't, if I definitely wasn't doing the tour, I mean, you're talking about the best team in the world. So if I'd come back into racing and race really well and been very valuable and vital to the team, then you know, they and Dave wanted me to race the tour. I, I wouldn't obviously, definitely would never have said no. I would have loved to have done that. So I would have raced through to them. But if that wasn't the case, then uh, up until that point, you know, the teams are pretty set and fixed with the guys and programs of what they're doing. I would have had, you know, July, August, September to pre- prepare 100% for Kona. Um, and if I'd happened to have done the tour, then I would have only had, you know, um, August and September. So, which still would have been plenty of time. Um, so yeah, that was the that was sort of the plan. The the sort of cutoff was kind of the end of July um, to be sort of called upon a lot. Having said that, if something came up in August, you know, as a bit of a tune up here or there, um, that would have been great. But you know, at sort of August September was was the period where we'd earmarked as being, you know, Cameron needs to really knuckle down and and get ready for Kona at that point. But, and so, so with how for the you mentioned there are two three main groups. Then is that established like do people have almost set roles within that 30 and the whole year, their whole year is 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 predetermined to be training with that as the focus or is there quite a bit of flexibility between certain riders who are so good at particular areas that they're switching and, and used in all of them no yeah yeah i mean a team like Ineos, they're the best team in the world and they're pretty much pigeonholed, you know, the, the group, the specific groups. You know, there's about 10 guys that focus on the tour. There's about eight or 10 that focus on the classics. And and you'll have about probably six that will focus on the Tour of Italy, which they'll pull a couple of guys from elsewhere to fill in that team. Um, and then you'll sort of just have, after the tour is done, then it's sort of who takes stock of who's still alive and kicking and, and throw them in the races at the end of the year is generally how it how it starts. So um yeah, it's pretty set from you know, from December you know what's going on. And um and in my case I'm reserved for everything. So yeah, I could race the tour, I could race Roubaix, I could race the Giro, I could race absolutely every race on the calendar if they um if they need me. Um and so yeah, and so far when they've called me to a race, I haven't even been the same continent as the race has been on. So I've had quite a bit of travel and <laughs> got there and yeah done done exactly what we we planned and it's been fantastic i'm really enjoying it and and so say so you get called to a race then because everyone has a slightly different role within the team um what what do they tell you when you go into a team if you've just turned up a few weeks out and you know you're going to be doing uh, a race that you might not know as well or a team as that doesn't know you don't know as well as the rest of them uh, how do they ensure that you ha- know your role and that you can execute to it well you're a professional bike rider i mean you're pretty adaptable and we've all raced a lot um so yeah there's the roles are all pretty similar you generally got a leader or two leaders at a race you know if say there's seven guys seven to eight guys you've got 
you have a road captain, sort of someone that'll on the road that'll relay the messages for or make decisions, you know, on the fly uh, for the team. Um, that you and, and is that the same person as your lead rider? You know, no, would... no, usually a different guy. Sometimes it is, but generally it's a different guy. And then you'll have, you know, a couple of, you know, two or three workers that are just there to make sure that people have got drinks and if you need to catch a breakaway or do whatever, they do all the work for that or position you for a for a crosswind. And then you might have a couple of other specialists in there. You might have a sprinter, you know, if it's a stage race that targets the sprint stages or you might have a climber that's there to specifically help, you know, when there's some mountains, help the team leaders. So, yeah, it's pretty straightforward. You, know, you never get there scratching your head wondering what you're going to do. It's, um, yeah. And and the because I I think you should assume that most of the listeners don't really know the full details of of kind of the the logistics of how the team work and and work with each other. Um, so for example, on the tour, who would be who'd be the decision maker out of the Tour de France team? Luke Rowe. Luke Rowe's the guy that um, calls all the shots on the road. He's the road captain for 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 the team for Team Ineos. He's and, one of the best in the sport. And has, has he always been there? Has he been like the last few years, the, the team? Yeah, captain? he would have been for the last two or three years. And before that, um, yeah, they've, they've had other guys. Um, but, um, yeah, he's, he's certainly been regarded as – well, he's regarded as one of the best at that in the sport in general. You know, he never misses a crucial moment in the race. He makes great decisions and um, he's very smart and – race smart and, uh, and and he has the respect of everyone which is the most important thing so so how how does that work then just do the team go into it, it like does, is each is there a strategy overall when you look at a race of we're going to play it by this we're going to attack this day in this way we're going to attack this team or like how much flexibility is there uh, well, there has to be a lot. You got to win the race. I mean, you have a strategy, but if another team's stronger and they do something, you got to do something about it. So, um, yeah, it's one thing to stick to your plan, but if the plan's not working, then that's when your road captain, or the people on the road that are in the thick of the action, have to make decisions. And that's what this team's very good at. You know, I mean, often it looks like they're completely in control, yet they've actually things have actually not happened as they planned, and they've they've been able to you know figure it out and. Um, and that's how you win. You know, it's not, you don't win the tour so many times over so many years by just doing the same thing and no one else can do anything about it. They've had to adapt, you know, uh, on the fly and on uh, numerous occasions. But, you know, you always have some sort of a plan. And, and I guess, yeah, I'd say more than 50% of the time that, that kind of generally works if you're the strong, strongest team. But, yeah, there's certainly 25% of the time or so that... Um, yeah, you throw throw things throw the mud at the wall and see what sticks. So. And and how do have you? It's, this might be a very naive question. Do you do you all have team mics? Like, how do you communicate with each other how you're feeling? Because obviously, with the team manager has a radio in the car and he can talk to all the riders individually. You know, well, not individually. Everyone hears everything, and and then you all have a microphone that you can talk into. So. It's a, you don't hear it so well you know, as a rider um, when the other riders are talking. You hear the director in the car because there's no noise. The guy, the director in the car can hear what you say very clearly, so he generally repeats that. So, yeah, there's never an issue with communication. And besides, you're generally pretty close so you can talk to each other. So, um, yeah, that's, communication is not a drama. So is, is there a lot of back and forth deciding, you know, how really figuring out how everyone's feeling to no. then adapt... No, no, I mean, everyone knows 
at this level, this team's pretty good, and you know, you yeah, it, it, we don't speak much at all, to be honest, unless something sort of happens and it's just a call to arms, and you all know what you got to do, and yeah, get on with it. It's not, it's certainly not like Formula One. So yeah, it gets quite annoying if they talk too much. I mean, it can be handy. It's you need to know what you need to know, and you don't need to know what you don't need to know, so to speak. So um, yeah. And so, do you, do you always come in then as as basically the workhorse, the person who's going to be burning the candle first? Oh, absolutely! At the moment, the couple of races I've been to, for sure, I haven't raced in six years. You got to sort of figure out where you're at, and I don't even know what I'm good at anymore in cycling. So, um, been that long. Um, didn't feel like I was really good too much at all. No, I wasn't that bad. I was <laughs> certainly certainly um, not one of the first people in the race drop. That's for sure. But um, yeah, yeah, you, that's that's my role, and I'm pretty happy with that because that's the type of role that really helps my training. Just you know, grinding away, constant pressure on the pedals all day, and doing a bit extra than everyone else. And um, yeah, yeah, just doing my bit. So um, yeah, it's a bit of a dream come true, really, riding for the best team in the world. Get to go and race in Kona, and you know, I was actually going to run the London Marathon too. So it would have been a pretty amazing year. But who knows? Maybe next year will be even more spectacular. We'll see. And um, and in terms of when you first joined the team, then do you, how how does it work? Do you get um, wind tunnel tested for your kit? Do uh, does Dave Brailsford shave you down to make sure you know you're hairless and that everything's as tight as possible? And no, it's not like that at all. I mean, I we've done all that anyway, and now we have mannequins. So you know, actually, Froomey and Geron Thomas and I, for example, kind of share one because the stuff I use for triathlon is actually more advanced than what they use on the road because of regulations. Triathlon doesn't have as many so it's quite good we can use my stuff as sort of a bit of a pilot and then when they can figure out how to make it legal they can use that so um yeah really? i've been doing that stuff for a long time and um now it's just basically a case of putting on your gear and getting on with it it's pretty simple what, we've, what, we've got this stuff so we don't what are the differences then what kind of things are you allowed in ironman that you wouldn't be allowed in cycle different rules i honestly have no idea um what what they actually are um but there's different things with you know being able to trip the air you know the surface like rough surfaces and different channeling and so forth on your outfit that you can have in in um, triathlon that you can't have in in cycling so um uh yeah it's i mean i'm sure there's it's a very complicated rule book um there's there's certainly measurements you have to adhere to on a, in a road race in on both time trial and road cycling which you don't have in in time trialing i mean in uh, iron man i mean if you wanted if you had arms that were six meters long you could have handlebars that stuck out six meters so um whereas in in i'm in train uh, the road on the road in an, in a time trial you can only have it 80 centimeters you drop a plumb bob uh, from the tip of the aero extensions and you measure back to the center of the bottom bracket it can't be further than 80 centimeters but on my tire my triathlon bike i think it's 82 or 83 i mean it's not much difference but it's gives you an opportunity to be more aerodynamic not quite graham o'brie style but yeah you could do that if you wanted um, but you so, can't so, do that do the team all have the same bike then like how, how much is it adjusted towards the individuals well, no, of course, we all have our own bikes because, um, yeah, I mean, you get some people that are, you know, five foot tall and some people are six, so you, you can't fit on the same equipment. But, yeah, different sizes, but, yeah, the same, exactly the same models, the same models, just completely different geometries. But they're all they're, they're all consumer, um, you know, you can buy any bike we use. You, you, you know, you're not allowed to use a custom bike. 
they have to be commercially available. Everything you use in a bike race has to be commercially available. Oh, right. Okay. I didn't realize that. Same as same as uh, running, you know, same as mm. in a marathon. That's why, you know, Kipchoge did have a special shoe for the braking when he broke the 159 challenge, the Ineos 159 challenge. Um, but he would not be not have been able to wear that at the time had the Olympics been on the same day, for example, mm. unless they've got it approved, which they've now done. Um, I think it's slightly modified, slightly different, but, yeah. You, it has to be. You, can, you need to be able to go and buy it in the shop. Now, link with um, the Tour de France. The I guess the runner's view is that there's been a lot of drug takers through the years. But how how would you compare drug testing in Ironman with drug testing in in tour cycling? Uh, I mean, I, I mean, it, yeah, it's. In cycling, they obviously target people, so they'll you know test the team leaders a lot, and you know guys number further down the list on the team often don't get tested much at all. Um, and sometimes the ones that are further down that never get results but are getting paid very well to do a job, they tend to be the ones that actually ultimately get caught these days. You don't tend to get the big guys getting caught. Um, you got guys that are you know making a good salary and going about their business quietly and maybe doing whatever they need to do to keep that job and and over the past few years, it sort of seems that they're the ones that have been getting popped. Um, in, in Ironman, yeah, I mean, I've been at team camps with the team and I've been tested personally more than they have uh, by WADA. So, you know, I'm one of the, I guess, top guys in my sport, though, and it's, you know, you're an individual, so it's a bit easier to target us sort of top guys um, as opposed to worrying about so many different cycling teams and then the best guys in that. Um, but, um, yeah, I mean, that's... Yeah, you know, I always say, I mean, there was, there was a generation of athletes that said they did the right thing and they, you know, then turned around and said, oh, yeah, sorry, we cheated. Um, so we, what do we say? I mean, we can't say, oh, we don't cheat. I mean, because someone said that before. Um, you know, we've got, no, we got nothing. No way to stand on. I mean, yeah, everyone will say, oh, that's what the other guys said. Yeah, well, that's right. So, And, and do you get a sense of, because it's, it's very hard to tell whether, you know, when people get busted if it's an individual or whether you know how easy is it to do you think if there's a if there's if there's one it's the team or do you like is there so much variety and flexibility in how you have your nutrition and how you live your lives that it's very easy for everyone to be different or do you think it, 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 it would be a cultural thing team by team no, the the thing is now it's just not accepted in sport or well, in our sports. I mean, if, um, you know, an Ironman for sure, you know, whenever there's any you know, doubt about some guys, you know, there's a bit of chitter-chatter and they generally vanish um, and um, or they're certainly not performing at that level anymore and that's fine too. You know, you don't need a scandal. You just need to get rid of the problem. Um, and in cycling... Yeah, it's similar. I mean, back in the old days, this is what sort of drove the sport, literally, pardon the pun. Whereas now you have a doping scandal and you have, a, you know, $30, $40 million, you know, sponsor walk away and, you know, 100 people lose their jobs. So um, is that is that the right reason for it tidying up? No, maybe not, but um, that's certainly what's changed the sport over the past sort of 15 years. 
is is that bad. It's just not acceptable. And obviously, if if, if any team senses that someone within their ranks is putting that at jeopardy, then they're gone quickly. Um, so, um, do you, do you think there are people that are being hushed out of teams? Um, oh, I don't know. I mean. Yeah, who knows? I mean, that, that's not my job to, we have, you know, pretty, I mean, in our team, and I'm sure every team has a pretty strong compliance um, system that keeps an eye on that sort of stuff. But I'm sure if they spot something that's not right and um, can pick up on it and, and deal with it um, internally and, and remove that athlete, then, um, mm. yeah, that's what I'd be doing as a team. I mean, it, it's it's a bit even you look at the whole Lance thing. I mean, it, Mm. Yeah. Okay. Lance deserved to be punished for what he did. Um, no doubt. That's. But how, how did that? Did that help the cancer community? Hell no. Did it help the cycling community? Hell no. You know, did it help Iron Man that he was about to do an Iron Man? Hell no, it didn't. I mean, Iron Man would have been huge if if Lance had done it. Um. And so, and I'm not saying that he shouldn't have been punished and they should have let it all go. But I'm saying they could have found a way to deal with it in a way that it it kept the strength of all that good that he did. You know, and 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 made him somehow found a way for him to, you know, learn a lesson or help others from making, you know, changing the culture or or doing whatever, like they have done with a lot of other guys that have been busted for different things. I mean, so yeah, that to me it was just really disappointing. You know, where you you had, I mean, you look at the cancer, you know, industry for example, and. I mean, he would have raised literally hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars more for that had things been handled differently, you know, over the last 10 years. So that's, to me, sad. You know, innocent people got affected by that. Um, not Lance, you know. And, and now you've got a nine-tire generation that is still answering these dumb questions, you know. Half of us weren't even competing then, you know. So um, it's ridiculous. And half of and mostly guys like Egan Bernal weren't even born. And that's... Um, so yeah, so it's just, it's just sad. It's really sad. But. And because because there are still some individuals on the tour that, that are kind of linked. Um, you, you mentioned a little bit about the the compliance that you have to go through. Like, what what kind of checks do they have on you to to ensure that you are um, not sneaking the old package or two? I think the biggest change came with the biological passport, which you have periodic. You know, every couple of months you have a test um, of your parameters, which over a long period of time will show if you all, you know, look, most of us, I mean, I've been on it since 2008 or nine when mm. it started. Um, and, um, you know, it's going to pretty quickly show up if you're doing anything to manipulate the system, particularly, you know, blood doping where you're putting in, pulling out blood and building new cells and then sticking old ones back in that, you know, have been stagnant or I don't even know how that works. But, <laughs> but for some reason, they can obviously tell the age of cells. That makes sense to me. Um, so... That has certainly helped a lot, and I think EPO also, you know, um, abuse of that can be shown with that. Um, so that's a that's certainly a big thing. Mm. Uh, and then I guess just teams monitor their athletes, you know, and, and how they're going. I mean, if all of a sudden they're flying and they weren't recently, then you know they probably have a closer look. And if they can't find a reasonable explanation for it, then um, yeah, they probably confront the rider and, and and try and figure out what's going on. But yeah, I think it's pretty pretty straightforward. Um, you know, the mm. how, to, how to sort of control it these days. I mean, you're always going to have people that are maybe one step ahead, but you know, I'd never once get on a start line anymore, and, and I never have, um, and worried that I'm not going to win because I haven't cheated. 
um, I'd go and do, you know, it's not our job to write the rules. So I just, you know, pro, you know, believe that the authorities are doing the best they can and obviously the teams are doing the best they can. And, um, yeah. Yeah. No, that's race and the best man will win. So, yeah. And, and that's, 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 if you don't like it, it's not, <laughs> it's not, it's not up to us athletes to fix that. Yeah. And, and that's my frustration with running, to be honest, that we seem to have taken on the mantle of, the cheating sport because it there isn't the funding behind i think because we lack we don't have a tour and yeah. so you know something as big as the tour de france so the the number of athletes who aren't tested regularly and therefore and as you say that that biological passport seems to be catching out quite a lot of athletes currently um and yeah if, if we could get to the level of testing of the tour in in, a, in in marathon running, I think it would absolutely transform um, what's happening because it's so hard to tell these days yeah. who is clean, and and so many heads are popping up. It's uh, and and just so many people are missing tests as well. Um, now, if um from from your view inside the team, um, if the tour had gone ahead, banned, how would you have, what do you predict would have happened amongst the team? Like how, how would Luke have called it? And what kind of strategy do you think the team would have had with who was attacking, who was leading? And, you know, was there more than one kind of sub team within the, the tour team? Um, well, what do you mean the t- race is planned? I mean, the tour is scheduled to happen in a couple of months. So. Oh, is it still, do you think it's still going to go ahead? Yeah, it's, it's, they're planned for it. Absolutely. Yeah, oh my God. I hope so. Yeah, we've got all protocols in place and guys that are preparing for it. That's who's here. Half the team is here. Egan Bernal will be here with me training in a couple of weeks He get when they get back from Colombia. And, um, yeah, a couple of the other guys that are on the list are here with me at the moment. And then a few of the others are in, in France. And, um, yeah. And do, so. do, you, do you get a sense? Because, you know, the last two winners, they get – Garant really benefited from well, the fact the that of the last three winners from. <laughs> oh yeah, no, no, no. But I was, three, I was, our three winners are all meant to be on the start line this year, so um, yeah. But that was, I was going to say that the, the, the last two winners, they like Garant. He really benefited from the fact that Broom was the the main cyclist at that stage, and he could then counterattack the next year. You know, having Garant there and, and Egan as well meant that that when Egan made that break and, and put that time in, it was partly because Geraint was there as the, the main focus. Like yeah. how, how, what, what is the focus within the team? Do you get a sense of that? Yeah, for all three of them. You know, you've got to have a couple of backup plans, as we found out in the last couple of years. You know, I mean, Froome went in as leader and, and G1. Um, and then last year, G went in as leader and Egan won. So... Uh, this year, they've got an extra guy there. I think, you know, for Chris, um, obviously, he'd love to win his fifth tour, but he's coming back from a pretty horrific accident. So I don't, you know, I think if he has a strong race, I think that would be a great result. Certainly don't discount him winning. There's no no way. I mean, a guy that's won it four times, but um, I'd say at the moment, you know, I don't think he's putting a lot of pressure on himself um, to do that. I think, you know, he's he'd like to be good, but if he's not, he's going to be an incredible you know, ally to those two guys. So, um, yeah, and then and then it finishes with a time trial. So I guess G's got the opportunity to, to just sort of bide his time and, and maybe do what Egan did last year, maybe be the one that can just sort of, um, 
you know, sneak away and they'll all be watching Egan and then have the have the ability to have him the time trial at the end and he could be the favourite. So um, he's certainly been very strong on that climb before. So, yeah. And, and when when they when they hit the, the, the climbs, do you get a sense of who's who's going to be at the back? No, no. I mean, they'll, they'll figure that out. They'll all line up and once you hit a climb, gravity's there. So he's going to quickly figure out who's the strongest. And... Um, and there's some other very strong riders in the race, so they'll be getting attacked, and it's going to become very, you know, within the first few days, the first week is very hard, challenging. Mm. You're going to know straight away who's who's in shape and who's not. You know, I guess, you know, the big the big question mark is still over Chris, obviously coming back from his accident. So um, that'll be the first one to see where he's at, and you know, if he's there and they're all there, then that's great. They've got three options to play, and the team's very the team is one with what four different riders in eight years, so. Uh, you know, the mo- they've, I think they've proven time and time again and, um, that the most important thing is that the team wins and, and there's no one with more experience of, of sort of dealing with that than, than Dave Brailsford and, uh, with the guys So on that level. But they're all mature and they all know what they need to do and they've all benefited from it. So, um, yeah, I think, it's, yeah, I think it's a great situation for the team to be in. Oh, I'm so pumped now. Oh, um... And and so in terms of your future then, how what what are your plans? Like we I realise I've taken quite a bit of your time, so I guess wrapping up a little bit. Um, do you do you see where do you see yourself coming in in February? Yeah, well, I'm I mean I'm basically the reserve for everything now. I mean the racing season is meant to start in August and go through until middle of November, which finishes with the Vuelta Espana. So basically, I'll be reserved for you know, everything leading up to the Tour and, and the Giro. Um, and if I'm not required for either of those two events, I mean, I'd say almost certainly I won't be at the Tour, but I might need to do the Giro. They might need me for the Giro. If they don't need me for the Giro, then I would imagine I will almost certainly race the Vuelta Espana. Um, if that if the season lasts that long, you know, they don't have any issues. Um, and that's mid-November. Uh, Kona's been rescheduled to early February. Um, so at the moment, they're still planning on having 2020 Kona in early February. So Geraint and I always train in LA in January. So that works out perfectly. I'll finish the welter, have a little break, freshen up and really get stuck back into my running. I'll be able to keep my swimming up pretty well with my racing, but I'll back off the running a little bit. Um, and, and and what do you, uh, do you, do you think you're on schedule to, to win Kona? I'd like to think so. Yeah, I've had a really good block of running this year, and um, with this lockdown, that's been quite helpful. Not having to race, I've actually run quite a bit. And I'm at altitude, I, the police were locking off the car park for me at 2,000 meters. <laughs> okay, loops. So I've been training like a Kenyan for the last few months, so feeling really and, good about running. Mm. And what, what do you think is going to be the difference? J- just that you're, you're now running like a Kenyan, or are there other elements that you think no, will come to play? I've run a 245. It's been able to run that every day. You know, I ran 255 in Kona a few weeks later. I mean, it's hotter and harder and I was probably tired, but it's getting to that point where that 245 becomes your bad day. So it's not that fast. Mm. I'm more than capable of running the speed. It's it's getting the years of, of working your legs, so you're resilient. Mm. No matter what happens, no matter how tired, how fresh, whatever happens on the day, you're still capable of knocking that out and, and obviously putting the pressure on them on the bike to... Um, take a bit of their the sting out of their running legs if they want to be close. And if they're not close, well, you know, be quick enough to run away from them. So, And are you, are you, tempted, in, are you tempted to potentially put in like a, a really quick solo marathon time ahead of it 
to almost uh, send out a warning shot and, and force them to cycle harder on the bike? No, 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 not at all. I mean, it's so irrelevant. There's guys in my sport that have run, you know, two 17 marathons and they mm. can't outrun me in an Ironman. So, you know, it's the bike takes a huge amount out of a, out of a runner's legs when they try and ride as hard as I ride. Um, so, mm. um, yeah, and the sport, until I came along, you could get away with that because the bike was quite a bit slower. I mean, I'm riding... 10, 15 minutes quicker than they used to ride. And, and that's meant made guys, as I've become better at running, other guys have responded. Um, and they've, they've seen the way I've done and gone, oh, shit, maybe I can actually ride harder and run faster because they've had to. And that's mm. great. The sport's progressed. I mean, eight hours used to be fast for a marathon. Now everyone's going 7.45. So um, me included and um, Alistair Brownlee included. You know, I mean, we've both gone 7.45 last year. Um, so, yeah, it's a different league. And, um, yeah, running a flat marathon, it's like doing an all-out time trial on the bike or swimming. Mm. It's relevant. It's how well you put it all together. Well, best of luck with this this coming year. Um, I'm crazy excited about well, the tour to see if you, you know, can make the teams and then just to see how it goes in Kena. Um, and uh, is there anything we can do to kind of help you or what's the, be what's the best way for us to follow you in, in what you do in the, the forthcoming years? Just be a fan. Just if anyone says anything bad about me, just set them right. Just tell them. <laughs> really great guy. That'd be <laughs> Yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming to the podcast. And I, I wish you the best for uh, the next few years. Thanks, Thanks very much. Cheers. <laughs> What a legend. Oh, there, there was so much, so many things I'm happy about. I think you'll find that, I think you could probably guess the part that I'm most pleased about. <laughs> the confirmation that cyclists are indeed bigger dicks than everyone else. <laughs> I mean, he's got more I mean, insight into anyone because he's trained with everyone. Yeah, exactly. Cyclists, Ironman and running. And yeah. rowers. And rowers. Yeah. Yeah. Crazy. I wonder if he's trained with any sexologists. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, yeah, what what a career. And you've, you've really got to hope that he wins the Ironman next year because it would be incredible to see you in there. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. The, 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 the terrible thing is, I'm being, I'm, every episode we're doing to help you with your training, I just want to watch Iron Man now. I want to watch the World Cup. <laughs> and we're meant to be against Iron Man, but I just, it's drawing me in. I, I think I'm going to have to do one at some point. Oh, careful, careful. But I, I, it's really interesting what he was saying, that he's, he's focused so, because I, I don't think I've ever really heard from anyone who has, has leaned into the running in their Ironman training as much as he is. No, no, it's always, the focus is always on the cycling, always on the cycling. And, they, and it seems to be that in terms of when, I, when I'm looking at stuff around Ironman, everything, it's all about the cycling. Yeah, and, and like Gurr and Chrissy Wellington, both of them, for what they've said in, in their advice, has been just get on a bike for hour, you know, get your swim technique good enough, get on a bike for hour and hour and hour and rely on your natural running ability um, and a few training run training runs get you through the marathon. Whereas... Rely on your natural running ability. See, for most people, that would be <laughs> perfectly fine. I don't know. I don't know how helpful that is for me. 
yeah, it's 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 amazing that, that that he's managed to be such a high level where he almost gave up on the bike, and yet he's still so good that he's wanted by the best race team in the world. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's, and then, it's an interesting move from Ineos, really, that isn't it? Of having you know, um, yeah, going for Kona. Um, but I love the way that he's just so naturally. Oh, you know, if we need you in the uh, in the cycle team, we'll just you know we'll draft you in like you're some kind of utility player. That you know, <laughs> it's like a classic utility. I mean, who could do that? Yeah, I know. Who could do that. It's inc- and it, it's 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 a shame that. Well, maybe it isn't a shame. But do you feel like he's he wasted his talents, or do you think he's making? You know, is this actually the best of both worlds? Well, I I think it sounds like he he very much needs to do his sport in the way that he does it. Otherwise, he doesn't do it. I mean, that sounds really weird. Like it, yeah. it has everything has to be on his terms in order for him to enjoy it. And if he's not enjoying it then he doesn't want to do it. And it's true, like, I think there's, there's different personality types, isn't there? There's some people who absolutely hate, you know, the, the fact that they're naturally able at stuff, but they absolutely, you could tell that they, like, absolutely hate the training, they hate everything about it, whereas he seems to really, it, it comes across as he really loves what he's, it, when he's doing it, and he has to love what he's doing it, and it has to be on his terms. Because um, that's really interesting about you know how how structured it is and how that structure kind of kills it for him mm. and ruins mm. his performance. And you'd expect it, you'd expect it to have been mu- to it be much more tailored um, to individuals. Um, I mean, how yeah. many people have how many people have we spoken to on this podcast who have had their careers essentially um, uh, either shortened or ruined because of training advice that, that, that yeah. was telling them that yeah, this is the way that the elite this is the way that the people who are winning right now are doing it therefore you have to follow it I yeah there's well, kind of quite a thread of that going through um uh, uh, people that we've spoken to yeah like andrew Steele, like lost a second exactly what i was thinking of when i was thinking of uh, thinking of that yeah lost he's, a second because he, he started training in a way that wasn't that didn't work for him it's yeah it's really interesting because you you thought with cycling, I don't know why you'd have to train as a team necessarily, um, if there are distinct advantages or not. I can't remember the name of the guy he was saying was the. Um, I, I can't even remember the name. The, the team coach, the guy who's on the on the microphone on the uh, on the mic and everything. But it sounds like he. he no one argues with him. <laughs> no, not Brailsford. Yeah, I mean when you're head of. I, I, I'd be interesting to know whether he's always been like that or whether that's just come about from, if you think about how successful he was at the Olympics, he's got to have been the most successful coach at the Olympics because England, so Britain, the number of cycling medals they won, was it, was it nine gold medals? It, I mean, potentially, given where British cycling was, because you, you do get, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, I think that's the thing, isn't it? I think people don't realise where British cycling was, how far behind it was. You could almost make the case that, and I don't know enough about all of the other sports, but it'd be very hard for any coach at any point in the history of Olympic events to have been as impactful as Dave, as, as, as he was for Britain in cycling. To go from practically no hopers to 
the most dominant, by far the most dominant team in a sport that we're not known for. And then to do Tour de France, win, win, injury, win. Yeah. So I wonder if you almost need that absolute rigid, rigidity to well, achieve that's the thing, isn't it? It's, it's, you think, you know, it's almost as though you have individual, you can have, it's almost like the, the whole thing playing as a team, isn't it? It's the team, how much is the team structure the thing that works about it? And then sometimes you're going to get these individuals who are very, very talented, but really struggle within the team. You, you always got the impression that Wiggins struggled to, mm. with that rigidity of it. You always got that thing. I mean, which is why he was, you know, so, he, he left so so quickly. Um, but yeah, that's it. I think the other, um, uh, I don't know if this is an appropriate seg. Um, the other thing he's talking about, um, which I thought was really interesting, um, where I, I had to jump out at that point, but um, the, the drugs situation, the obvious question that uh, you could see he's fed up of being asked about drugs. <laughs> are you? But he, he makes a really good point. Like, who who actually benefits with that? Because it sounds what they what do they they do now is essentially if someone's threat, you know, if it's found that someone's doing that, they deal with it internally, and it's you know, they disappear essentially, not in a sort of Chilean dictatorship type of disappearing thing, but they kind of they they're moved out of the sport quietly to it in order to preserve the the, the um, integrity of the sport, whereas. Before it would have been like splash, 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 and because obviously it damages the the sport itself. And it was a good point he made, you know, about you know all the Lance Armstrong stuff. Who did did it actually do any good in the end? What was the yeah. good? It was good in the sense of justice was served, but but that's I mean the, the, that's very hard argument to go down the lines of. Then that that would that, that level of argument that that logical argument means. It's the same as saying, let's not test for drugs. Because we don't want to find out anything that's going to damage the sport. And actually, that's what got us into the situation with Lance Armstrong. Because if they'd have been more ready to test and to question at that time, my understanding is that people always knew he was on drugs. That's people, the, yeah, yeah. And there, there's a, a famous scene from... I don't know if it's a video or just I've been retold the story where when he makes one of the breaks up a hill and he's hardly out of breath and he leaves Contador or whoever else it may have been absolutely dead in the water and the whole of the press just started laughing while they were watching it because like, this is so obvious he's on massive amounts of drugs. And so the trouble is that yeah, that's true at, by the end of his career that it was massively damaging to do that. But maybe we'd have had a champion who wouldn't have done drugs and yeah. wouldn't do all those things if they'd have called out early. And uh, the, the, other quite, the other challenging point, though, to that is if they are shepherding out people, you could spin it that you're shepherding out the people who are known to be taking drugs or look like they may be. But if it's that rigid a system, actually, the other point is well, is it more that you're shepherding out people who are shown to be likely to be caught? <laughs> yeah, they're just, I mean, that's all the thing, isn't it? It's not whether it's doing drugs or not, it's whether you're actually caught with any of this, isn't it? Yeah, and it's, it must be hard for him because he's coming into a team where he's, he's having to defend the position of Team Sky, 
<laughs> he's joined the team now. Yeah. Yeah, he's 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 probably had to be rehearsed and it's a shame we, we didn't have more time actually, but we'd love to ask that actually. Like, have you been PR'd in how to respond to these questions specifically relating to the package, relating to you know performances, drugs, blah 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 blah? Because it, that it would be a PR disaster if someone said the wrong thing, even if it's someone who's not involved in the team and who wasn't around then. And so you'd assume they probably have to. Yeah. But um, well. I thank firstly, I'm going to thank Ineos for putting us in touch with Cam because I absolutely loved this episode. And who'd have, um, who have thought we'd ended up with Team Ineos? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, like, like what? What is happening? Like the way we start off a podcast, our podcast, and then what are we on episode 221, 223, or something, and we got Team Bloody Ineos on it. Hundred percent, hundred percent, man. But Dubaz, what did you make of that episode? I know that there'll probably be quite a few new listeners who are Ironman cyclist rowers, but is this? It won't be after this. <laughs> <laughs> what What do you think, guys? Mainly because we we do divert from just running at times. Sometimes into adventure. Sometimes into just general topics sometimes into the love episode maybe we need to do a sexuality episode we need a love episode it's been promised so many times well we did the love episode but we need the loving episode the love (laughs) but you know what do you make to episodes like this you know cam obviously does running during his ironmans um but is this are you happy for us to talk about more endurance or do you want us to stay more focused on running um, or just running to be more true? Yeah, let, let us know. But if you've if you enjoyed this episode, um, do suggest who you'd like us to interview in the future. You can message David at badboyrunning.com and, uh, or tag me on a post in the Facebook group. Any other episodes you'd recommend, J.D., that kind of link into this one? Uh, I think if you're interested in Iron Man, then the obvious ones are Christy Wellington and um, uh, Ger Redmond. I think those are the obvious ones to uh, to pick up next. Yeah, if you're an Iron Man competitor and don't know Ger, Ger was a professional footballer who ended up going to jail because of family matters and a murder. Uh, sorry, yeah, not not necessarily a murder, a um, a, a death, should we say? Um, and then found redemption post prison by becoming and discovering Iron Man, becoming professional for Ireland. Um, other good episodes, if we were talking about multidiscipline, John Album, world champion of obstacle racing, trail racing, sky racing, Spartan, um, basically everything he does. Um, yeah, and if you want to put questions to our guests in the future, then follow us on Instagram. We put out in advance who we're going to be talking to. You can then put your questions below and we ask them during the interview. So thanks for listening, guys. Please subscribe. Please do leave reviews wherever you're listening to because it really helps us get future guests. And uh, thanks for listening. See you later. Bye 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 Yes, and give me one more try Cause a love like this Should I never ever die Come back Fuck you, buddy